everybody, and welcome back to Interseason Goodness with your boys from Sequelizers. I am your host, as always, Jack Chambers, and joining me, also as always, is Matthew Stogden. Not lace or leather. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we could just go back and forth and do those little little bits every oh, now and then because it's just easily. it's just gold. And speaking of Ooh. gold, also joining us is Tim Matum. The following program contains content that some viewers may find disturbing. Hey, yes. there we go. <laughs> exactly what he's talking about. <laughs> And if you have, I mean, that's that's a fairly cryptic thing there for, for, for people who haven't seen the name of the episode. And some people don't. We've we've had complaints before, compliments before complaints. that we do. We do always mention they're like, oh, okay, you know the name of the episode already because it's on your podcast player or whatever. Some people are driving. Some people it just skips to the next thing. So I'll let you guys guess. Have you have a couple of seconds to guess before I reveal, and then we'll do the big reveal. Of the name of the episode, so some people are just in the zone at the gym. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Dead Air. <laughs> <laughs> so you've had enough time. If you haven't already guessed, we're talking about opening title sequences for this episode, and it mm. is once again into season stuff. So we're branching away from bad sequels or even bad prequels, as we have done before, and we're <laughs> going to talk about some stuff we enjoy, some weird stuff concepts that happen in film in general and just branch out a bit more and have some fun and open up discussion a bit more as we like to do on these in-season episodes which is a bit more loosey-goosey exactly yeah yeah there's no reading of pictures or anything like that but we'll we'll talk about yeah some favorites some not so favorites and kind of like where opening credit sequences and titled sequences came from because i think that's a pretty good place to start right is where i think a lot of people as soon as you mention this they think James Bond or something like that. The the, the big sure, bombastic sure. kind of obvious ones. But it's really a thing that has kind of grown through the history of cinema and gone through a lot of different variations. And a lot of people are doing like callbacks to classic versions of it nowadays. And I know we've talked about the kind of 30 year cycle that things happening in. So like the 80s refers mm. to the 50s. We referred to the 80s and the 2010s and all that kind of stuff. And now we're in a bit of a weird 90s thing happening in the 2020s. But title sequences have kind of evolved and changed over the years, and I think it's an interesting topic that isn't really discussed that often. It's something, until we thought about this episode, wasn't something I'd really considered as like, is that a big enough factor to even discuss? And then actually went and looked up some things like, oh yeah, this has been <laughs> this has been a thing that has affected the course of cinema over the last 70, 80 years or whatever it is. So. It's literally where a film starts. So, <laughs> thanks, Matt. You're, you're, well, I mean, I mean, like, your first film, you're like, oh, I'm introducing you to films for the first time. You start being consciously aware of things that are on the television or if you do go to the cinema at a very young age. And it's like, right, bang. Uh, usually, uh, company logos and things. Mm. And then a title sequence. Now, mm. sometimes there's a, a cold open or something, but title sequence is in there. And there are contemporarily speaking uh, recently a lot of almost legal requirements for certain guilds mm. uh, which we'll get back to a lot later but interestingly if you ever watch an old film and it is a bit of a divide here because some people will think of what has been the last 30 or 40 years of cinema and as you mentioned uh bond dictated a lot of things and again as we'll get to later more narrative structures things but initially if you watch something like a universal horror film from the 30s, for mm. example, or any film from the 30s or 40s, almost all of the credits, everybody involved in the film, everything going on, was in the first minute or two. Mm. 
you'd have everything there. And then uh, that's why a weird, we don't really have this anymore. The concept of the film ending, it says the end and you leave. And then it just what, stops. It just stops, <laughs> yeah. And yeah. what they used to have for a lot of period of time, how you know cinemas used to be theatres with big fucking red curtains and stuff, you would play the titles or the, the, the people's names and things on the curtain. You wouldn't open the curtain for the film until that was done usually because it was just a list of names. Mm. And it was like, well, the film hasn't actually officially started yet. So the history of it evolved differently. And obviously the more people involved in movies, um, more for the sort of 50s and 60s and stuff, you found that it's like, we're making people wait for like three or four minutes now before the film actually starts. And mm. they're getting kind of impatient. And this is back when you'd have like a matinee or a, or a type of showing where you'd have... I mean, we moan now you get 20 minutes of trailers and adver- uh, adverts before a movie. But back then you'd have a newsreel and a short film, like a cartoon sort of thing, and then a short musical sequence, maybe feature, and then finally the movie, because it's a big sort of afternoon out, especially in America. So the title sequence, as it were, as it existed previously, was a very different animal. I mean, people, we talked about this previously in the, in the prequelizer season, The Wizard of Oz, for example. We've all seen The Wizard of Oz. It's a very old film, obviously. It has the same thing, where it just says, the end, and stops. Yeah. yeah. Well, now we've, got, we've gone to the culture of like post-credits and mid-credits things, and mm. we'll try and make yeah. you stay until the end, because you never know what Deadpool's going to do next, or yeah. the Avengers are going to return, and blah, 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 <laughs> or whatever. And that's become that culture from superhero movies bleeding over to other stuff. Obviously, they didn't invent the post-credits thing, but and the MCU has very much popularised that in big blockbuster cinema over the last decade or so. Yeah. And that's... They make, like, the first bit of the credits is kind of well-animated and nice and, like, mm. blah, 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 blah. And then they'll have a mid-credits thing, and then it's just the normal scrolling names at the end. But mm-hmm. not many people do opening credits these days. And I think a lot of people... I know, at least from, like, speaking to my friends and stuff, if something does... If that crops up, they're like, oh, God, i got to sit through the credits. Because mm. nobody in the West sits through the credits unless they they know it's a post-credit scene or something like that. Even then, they might just catch that on YouTube later. <laughs> but <laughs> having to, like, specifically sit through the, the opening credits to get to the film feels like, uh, oh, they're doing, they're doing this on purpose. They're making us watch this yeah. so we can reward ourselves with the film kind of thing. Mm. Whereas, it, as you said, Matt, it used to just be that's how it is. And then Finn or the end, whatever it says at the end, mm. and mm. your film's done. Whereas, well, especially now that I know what people working in cinema, as much as it's like, oh, I want to stay around for the last three minutes. I want to see I want to see the credits. I want to honor everybody who's worked on this film, all the thousands and thousands of different animators. And you're like, cool, cool, cool. We have another screening in, in the next 10 minutes. You need to get the fuck yeah. out. Obviously, not now in COVID times, but usually it's like rinse, rinse, get the fuck mm. out. We've two minutes to clean this place. Yeah, I think I think like and especially when we go back to those very old title cards of, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, before we before filmmakers started kind of to innovate with how a title sequence worked. Yeah. It it feels a lot like though, you know, when you watch like a like a, a stand up comedian special on Netflix or whatever, mm-hmm. and they'll often have like two minutes at the beginning where it'll be like this like weird little like sketch comedy before the stand-up actually starts of like the comedian behind the stage and stuff like that and yeah, yeah. and and it's what skipping that you know you you're just like i'm just i just want to skip past this i don't care about this part um and for a lot of those old credit sequences it feels like that because it's just there's nothing there might be interesting music going on 
some of them have very well designed title cards, but a lot yes, of them yeah. are just going to be are going to be perhaps like a static image from the film. I think of like classic kind of like film noir type stuff where it's just oh, like, yeah. it's like Desk. it's the still yes. of the opening shot yes. with just people's it's names coming the up. The exterior and like, of the building and then yeah. the opening shot will be like going through the front door or somebody will walk on screen or whatever. Yeah. 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 Um and and you can understand why people grew frustrated with that, especially as like you say, as films got bigger and bigger and more things became involved. Mm. You're going to need more and more names up there, true. And those sequences are going to get longer and longer, and you need something to make them visually interesting. And I think that's when, you know, in in my brain, like sort of fifties and sixties is when that mm. started coming. Although I'm sure Matt will probably correct me. And no, go, no, well, actually, that, it was. No, I think that's fair. I think it was just a case of innovation through people's time. And mm. you would just chuck the long list at the end because who gives a shit they stay around for it anyway? They've got their money, bugger it. Mm. But you still had the whole like, well, no, we have guilds for this. We have people who are, uh, and, and various unions, as it were, who mm. state these individuals are important. Mm. And it starts with like, you have to have the director at the front of this film. You have to have the writer. You have to have the main principal cast and then the DP and the producer and the studio names. And th- mm. this was almost, you know, the big arguing um, uh, uh, muscle flexing, shall we say, of who's most important. Oh, uh, yeah. And you and you get the starring and then there's top build and then sometimes yes. you're getting with or an and and it's yeah. the <laughs> other huge stars. Like, yes. um, and there's a funny enough, speaking of podcasts, the, the Rooster Teeth podcast, Gus, the host of that show, has always made a joke where he does, I'm Gus. And then they go around the other guys and then ends with and Gus because <laughs> he wants to be top build and the and guy as well because yeah, well, he's the yeah. most important. So it's like, yeah, I can see that. And, and there's definitely been that kind of like ego battling in Hollywood, as you can imagine, with, well, this is the director's film. And it's like, well, are people coming for the director? Or are they coming for the star? Or it's it's whatever. a weird question of like which one comes first? Uh, do you say directed by because it's the most important, or the last name you see is directed mm, by? Yeah, um, exactly. Or a blah 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 film or whatever. It's like mm. a Tarantino film or okay, a yeah, Spike Lee joint. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting how like like Matt was saying like a lot of that is dictated by unions and by guilds and stuff like that, and is is kind of people have to be in there and then a lot of that is negotiated within an individual film so you get that stuff of like like the difference between directed by so and so and a so and so film or mm. uh you know that um is is something that directors will actually like negotiate over and haggle um because one has so much more prestige because mm-hmm. because a so and so film suggest that person has kind of like a brand mm. that people are interested in like Spike Lee, just... like Tarantino exactly yeah. exactly yeah. Mm-hmm. and then and then like we said with the actors where like the the kind of traditionally you know especially when you think of something like a marvel film um you know it's the prestigious slightly older actor who's got a bit part who will be the the with or the and um at the end of it <laughs> um, yeah. and there was some i i think it was uh either Infinity War or Endgame or possibly both of those that had some really weird ones where you know that 
it's it's interesting to spot like oh that person must have a pretty good agent because they've managed to negotiate themselves <laughs> like a, mm. a in the first bit like of the credits are not in the second bit the of the credits <laughs> yeah and it's like uh, I think like Gwyneth Paltrow almost always manages to yes, get a Yes, she with. does. Yes, she um, does. And, and Chris Pratt uh, weirdly had one in like Infinity mm-hmm. War or something. And it's mm-hmm. like, mm, I don't think you've really. Uh, I mean, Pratt, that, Chris. Pratt's a pretty big star. He's been in Jurassic and all those kind of. He's like, but he's also like quite big in the film in terms of like just one of the key players. He doesn't need a whiff. Yeah, whiff usually yeah. implies you're either you know so yeah. big you're ridiculous or you're just having a small role in the movie but yeah Gwyneth yeah. fucking Paltrow is in those films for 90 seconds total yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a floating head in the rescue armor which is never explained and yeah. then and then Oscars, she's a little man. little Oscars. bit with Tony at some point that I probably have forgotten mm. weird weird but yeah she, I guess she's a name in a way like and like you said Tim a a lot of it is like who knows who with yeah, agents I mean, and all that bullshit. Yeah, scion well. of Hollywood filmmaking family. Yeah, so it's fucking like, goop bullshit as well. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Um, so yeah, it's, it's it's interesting how much that is negotiated and and stuff. Um, but we should probably go back into kind of like how opening, yeah opening titles have have evolved over time. So there is a it's a bit of a um, it's not a misnomer. It's it's, it's a bit of a an inaccuracy because Star Wars fans like to think they shape the world. Um, and to be fair, we, <laughs> so does George Lucas. Yes, very true. As we as we discussed with um, our alternate universe pitch, Star Wars has shaped a lot of cinema. So we were saying like, oh no, there's a legal requirement. You need to have the director's name at the start of the movie, along with the cast and so on and so forth and bits and pieces. And everyone sort of turns up and says, um, what about Star Wars? Mm. Which just goes. And even at the end, going into the the ending, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. And then you get the names at the end. It's literally, the end credits only. And again, Lucas was told by the Directors Guild of America, "You can't do that." And so he said, "Well, then I'll just have to hand my card back to you and get fined two hundred fifty thousand dollars because I want it to look this way." Which is again fair enough. Having said that, Star Wars isn't the first film to do it. Citizen Kane and The Godfather mm. and I want to say 2001 Space Odyssey, they don't have that shit. No, 2001 doesn't. No, Godfather just says Mario Puzo's The Godfather and starts. And it's not even the director's name, it's the fucking author. Mm. Um, and a- another one, which is a slightly similar incident, um, the opening credit sequence for Sin City is literally just a bunch of names and the uh, the equivalent character in the comics. And it just just like, you know, Bruce Willis and shows the, the character and stuff. That's, that's mm. all fine. It does everything it needs to do. The difference is this is directed by, and it says multiple names. Mm. Tarantino, arguably, says with, you know, additional scenes by, but it says directed by Robert Rodriguez and Frank Miller. And the Directors Guild of America said, Rodriguez, you can't do that. One person directs a film. And again, he had to hand his card back and say, well, then I'm afraid I can't be part of your union. Your guild, I should say. And that really upset him because he he worked very hard to get that. And what a, what a weird thing to. I'm not saying people co-direct stuff all the time, but people kind of do. Like, I mean, yeah. it's not the norm, but it's, it's not, not it's a fucking not unheard unknown. of. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's, it's, it's not like the Coen he's brothers. breaking new ground. Oh my god, yeah. nobody's ever done this before. The, the Coen brothers don't say the Coen brothers. They'll switch between Joel and Ethan. Yes, they they alternate, mm-hmm. don't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because again, you have to keep the unions happy. Yeah. So, but Star Wars is the one that people remember. How do, how do Lord and Miller do that? Because they definitely say Lord and Miller. I'm pretty sure yeah. they do. I, I think no. I think they. Well, I think they, they say Lord and Miller comments? when it's when it's the writing and the producing credits. I think that I don't think if I think they do a single director. Do they alternate think, like, like the Coens? Uh, animated yeah. films also have a different thing where they'll say animation director and of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
But then, so, but then Captain Marvel has dual directors as just another modern example, and I can't remember how they did that. Again, I think after they, when I was referring to two thousand and five, I wonder if yeah. over the years after the writers' strike and stuff like that, they realised like we bit. need to stop doing this. <laughs> Maybe <Yeah. laughs> we need to um, get with the times, man. <laughs> but it's interesting in that when you shift the credits to the back, you'll often then you'll have the big closing title sequence, you know, yes. that we used to where there, where again you'll have perhaps some showy visuals and like an interesting song, but then you will have a lot of that stuff, that information repeated in just a scroll of text. Yes. Which is a way so that mm. it, so that certain people get featured on it twice, the same way that they would if you had opening titles and then just a scroll at the yeah. end. Yeah, sure. And which so again must be a, a union thing. I, I think that's the it's 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 uh, unfortunately and we we discuss this, we always look for like a really cool anecdotal story as to why. But the truth is like with most things, just companies flexing bullshit and business and like my act is worth more than that that kind of thing mm. um so once the 70s and 80s started to come about and you had much more outside of the studio system movies being made there was a lot more creative energy basically on screen and it became very clear and apparent that this whole starting point didn't have to just be well we need to whip through these names and so tim's right it is the 50s and 60s where you start to see things very interesting you'll start to see the film start and names come up on the screen with it or you'll start to see if i'm very classically james bond you have a really big colorful fun, mm. flashy dot sequence for dr no which is you know quite you know rudimentary now but at the time was quite revolutionary. It's like, what the fuck is this? This is <laughs> yeah. hypnotic and And amazing. it's still in- incredibly striking today. It is. It like, is it's very... not at all really what we think of as a James Bond title sequence no. now, which was kind There's of invented no women in, in it. <laughs> uh, in uh, Goldfinger. Or, wah, actually, wah, wah. Well, the, from Russia with uh, Love Russia, had the whole project onto women. So, yeah. yes. It was, it was all pretty much building blocks. But then, like all Bond, it built its tropes upon each other until it became this behemoth that it couldn't yeah. see. You have to do this. Yeah. parody of itself. But um, <laughs> obviously, we're gonna, we, could, we could talk about that for, for the evolution all day. But I think if we whip ahead to... Um, let's face it, if we're being fairly honest with ourselves, our audience's memories would be predominantly 80s onwards. Sure. That's not necessarily a good or a bad thing. It just means that... That's we're millennials. Yay. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So... 80s onward stuff, you do get a, a, a range of things um, that, that push it out there. And I think there is a very distinct individual who dictated a lot for the 90s, and that's Kyle Cooper. So very famously, they needed a credit sequence for Seven, for David Fincher's Seven, and there were just this one scene, pages upon pages upon pages and pages <laughs> of these books filled for you know the John Doe's diary of him, you know, laying out all the 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 workings of his his crimes to come, as as it were, or what he'd already done as uh, mm. planning and things. And the title sequence for Seven shows all that stuff, and it's fascinating. And this really popularized an idea that was already, let's face it, was already in place. There could be examples from the sixties and seventies as well. Hitchcock kind of did a bit and pieces. It kind of like this, where you'd have a lot of really ominous nods. In like you say, in that single still image, or saying the like, tone and atmosphere of the rest of the film, but not actually using direct imagery from it and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So what you'd end up getting is environmental storytelling with almost no, well, probably no dialogue at all, just the titles of people's names, but also the music. And I think that's that's very much a case that I think it was um, again Rodriguez or Tarantino um, talking. It must have been Tar- uh, Rodriguez, sorry, talking about from *Dust Till Dawn*. I think mm. directed yes. commentary and saying this is one of the best and most fun things to do because you can tell a story of it separate and you can start illustrating, 
you know, you can do a lot of fun things. Things you can't do in a film. It's like, oh, I need a narrative reason to do this. I need to, it's like, well, fuck that. This is the title sequence. Just go to a music video. <laughs> Oof, off and away. Do a really yeah. fun thing. And I think it's very interesting that I mentioned like Carl Cooper, for example. This isn't always the vision of the director. It's the person who's watched the film, got the idea for the feel of it all and goes, right, don't worry, I'll come back with something. And they workshop it as a separate team. It becomes a short film in of itself. Mm. Um, and I think that's always a bit of a, a bit of a fascinating uh, inclusion. In a, in a way, it's a bit like how we have trailer cutting editing houses now ah, who just yes. specialise in doing trailers and mm. know exactly how to kind of grab people's attention. Um, but less damaging to, this way. <laughs> yes. Uh, and to distill, you know, a film down to, you know, the, the bits that you want to show. Yeah. Um, but like you say, I mean, it, it has roots. I mean, you think of like Saul Bass um, going mm, back to the 60s, mm. who obviously became this iconic designer, very much at that kind of point where things were transitioning from let's just shove a card up there with people's names on it to let's have a full-blown kind of title sequence. Yeah. Um, and he became someone who was very well known for the look of of the films that he you know did the title sequences for which became in some ways more iconic than the films themselves for, Pe- for some of people them. may not know the the name Saul Bass but if you mm. show him an image you'll go oh yeah yeah of course because they'll yeah. know that kind of that kind of kind of look yeah um and you have stuff like uh it's a mad 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 world of course where he did uh, an animated intro to it mm. um, that kind of is almost like a little summary of the film to come in some ways <laughs> <laughs> that's not really so bad but nothing disappointed me more than realizing that the pink panther at the start of the pink panther was not indicative of the fact the entire film was animated and went into live action yeah. you go, oh <laughs> this is bumbling cop all about fucking hell yeah Bring the cartoon back <laughs> um it, or the inverted version where you have an animated film with the live action sequence like the start of a lot of disney films we have a book and a hand opens and you're like oh wait, yeah wait, what yeah. Or Shrek, um, for example, the, the, our, ne- our nemesis uh, franchise. Shrek. Um, so yeah, there's so much you can do with it and there's so much creativity you can go into it. And it is a bit of like a, a music video or a separate entity, but it's very fun or dark or dour or, or, or narratively complicit, shall we say, in explaining what's about to happen. And, but equally, as I say, it's, it's, it's very interesting how they're not always the big... And as Tim kind of nailed it there with the, with the sequences can some, sometimes outweigh the film. So if I say, like, what's your favorite movie? Oh, I love this. And you're like, okay, fine. So uh, I really love Good, Bad and Ugly. Great example. That's got a great opening sequence because you've got those sort of almost rotoscope style horses jump riding in and stuff and being shot. It, it pairs up wonderfully and it's very 60s in that regard. Lots of striking silhouettes and colors and image, very bass imitation kind of thing. So what's your favorite film, Matthew? The Godfather. Title sequence good? No. Does, doesn't really <laughs> exist. No. The Paramount <laughs> logo and some stuff. So... Uh, shot, well, sorry, sorry. I think it's then it's shot of Michael, then the, the title card. But it's like, oh, great. And a lot of them are just anonymous. They're, they're kind of just yeah. purely perfunctory. They find a way to get as much, to uh, a, a bit in the way that uh, recently a lot of television programs cut That's, down on how they yes. did their title sequences, which kind of like Lost was a big turning point where it, it was, just it had. Was. Lost come up, and then the the episode would play out, and you'd have the credits at the bottom rather than having these big showy opening title, you know, theme song kind of thing. Mm. Um, and I think that a lot of films just take that approach. They want to get straight to the story. They don't want to fuss mm. around with a big opening title sequence. They just want the names playing out as kind of subtly as they can. Probably with like you know, I'm thinking of you know, sort of rom coms and teen comedies and stuff like that, where there'll be a peppy pop song and you know you'll 
get some character information and the basic setup and the location of the film and stuff like that and you don't really notice the names passing by mm. uh, as was as was recently suggested on i think twitter or, or the discord tv equalizers but we don't do tv yet but yeah. tv is a very interesting conversation <laughs> yeah, oh God. you're entirely correct and also because hbo has always very strongly said and netflix kind of as well fuck that we're going to spend millions on these title sequences and they're going to be mm. good like yeah. really fucking good everyone knows the game of thrones title sequences mm. and how important they were to sort of shed the map and things mm. but also with netflix especially it's like are you enjoying this yeah it's fucking great i want to skip it yeah. <laughs> no, no, I don't want yeah. to skip the intro. Oh, Fuck the you. skip skip intro button annoys me so much. Yeah. Okay, yeah. and and with TV, there's a very uh, strict calculus to it because they uh, networks try and squeeze more and more advertising in. Yep. The the people who make the you've programs got, are like, well, you've if got we 22 minutes of, to do the if thing. If we get yeah. rid of the title sequence, then uh, mm-hmm. then we've got more time to to actually tell our story in. In going back to to film there is an interesting thing about the nature of what you do and don't show at the start as well so for example some films if you take like um big hero six i think on and iron man three and things or john carter half mars um, <laughs> no it's not where, matthew you know it's not not until the end but that's the point. Until the end. these things don't appear until the end i'm pretty sure mm. it doesn't say iron man three until the last minute sure and it doesn't mm. say the credit the title until the end of the movie so sometimes you just get logo and bang we're straight in ground running and that can set a tone as well because the thing is the title sequence is literally okay you ready for this movie either i'm going to set the tone for it and there are lots of great examples for it or it's i'm going to tell us the story to get you involved to get you there or alternatively stop we're about to take some time out and it's like oh i was kind of really excited for what's happening <laughs> a, a, a perfect example for me and this was so close to on my list and i had some problems not including it but ghost in the shell the original animated movie which the live action tried to imitate and did it perfectly mm-hmm. yep is the construction of motoko kusunagi's body and it's got this fucking amazing score astonishingly cool score because it's both futuristic in terms of everything you're seeing, but the sound is just this very antiquated, classic Japanese sound. Uh, a very choral sort of sound, I should say. And it, it just goes... All the, um, the the sort of title sequences, the, 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 the names and things, alongside this evolution of this body as it's being born, for lack of a better word, the brain being put in the housing and her awakening, as it were, and it being constructed. It's fucking amazing. And that immediately sets the tone for what you're about to see. The old and the new paired together. Everything that's going on, it's just absolutely stunning and i think that kind of thing doesn't mar what you're watching it doesn't sort of put the thumb in your throat and say right right stop stop breathing we've got to do this we've got to go through the the business side of it now you're like oh for god's sake you know this is a legal requirement please um (laughs) pay attention to your cabin assistant as they show you where the exits are kind of thing (laughs) um so i think it is a pairing of literally if the director's involved in making it themselves and incorporate into the movie or you've got someone who's working somewhere. Again, just to bring one last time back to Kyle Cooper, one of the ones that I remember very distinctly when I was a kid is Spider-Man 2. The entire Oh, absolutely, sequence, yeah. Yeah, the entire sequence of the start is Kyle Cooper responsible for it. I think he did all the Raimi Spider-Mans, Spider-Men's. Um, but um, it, it specifically showed the events of the first movie to mm. Elfman's badass fucking score. And you go, yes, now I know where what I'm up to. So previously on. And I'm like, I'm here. I'm ready for this. Give me more fucking Spider-Man. And then you get one of the best Spider-Mans you've ever seen. Um, I mean, the thing is, he's also transitioned to video games as well. So he does a lot there. He's still going, obviously. Um, when video games try to imitate films more. And again, it's you get through walking through these vistas and landscapes and names come and the music changes. So that happens all. a lot. You'll get a prologue mm. bit of a video game. And then yeah. you'll get like 
title card. <laughs> and then maybe you're controlling a bit of the title sequence or something like that. And again, not to go on a tangent, that has been a thing that video games are clearly trying to like copy from films and make like yeah. interactive titles. I remember, I can't remember what game it was, but you like fall through the credits and like you Ooh. like bounce off the different names and you can like destroy <laughs> them and stuff. And like, I don't know if it's like you jump on the head of enemies to do that and you can mm. jump on the heads of the, like the name of the director and they'll disappear mm. and all this kind of stuff for the life of me. I can't remember what game that is. Might be Rayman or something like that. Mm. Write in, listeners. Tell us what it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let me know, listeners. I'm I'm completely blanking on that, but I remember it being really cool. I'm like, mm. oh yeah, that's that's an interesting idea. Yeah. Or having like a Tetris style thing where they all <laughs> link together. Yeah, and that's why that's why this is kind of an important episode to cover because title sequences, as we said before, and you know, in jest, they're the first thing you see. They influence other mediums. They, I mean, obviously, they are in themselves a legal requirement. They are a, a, a bit of an, a bit of administration, but they influence how TV works because TV is always emulating film to a degree. Um, they influence how video games now work, like with the Metal Gear Solid Two, which again, Cooper worked on with Hideo Kojima and other people. They wanted to go with the, you know, a big bombastic film experience. Oh man! And it's a title sequence, and that's the whole point. Yeah. And you wouldn't get this in the theater. You get Kojima's a, you know, fucking title sequence is ridiculous. Oh, yeah, entirely. <laughs> It's like what? What? It's time for a cutscene, you say. Um, <laughs> Forty-five minutes later, you wouldn't get like in the theater. It was like, okay, house lights down. Maybe you have a program explaining who's who. Curtains open. Boom, you're in. Whatever it is, you're in. And that's the theater for you. That's pure immersion. And for some reason, film doesn't do that as much. I find that I find that fascinating. And as I say, it's just the nature of uh, the industry of the requirements, both legal and now traditional if we're honest with ourselves mm. and the interesting thing is when you talk about vloggers i know i know we're getting i wasn't expecting you to go to that okay i know <laughs> because the first thing they sort of you want to do is emulate a movie so it's like okay we need to have a good title sequence it's like for your vlog like, yeah i want to beg <laughs> it's, cool, all, it's really... all about the thumbnail man come on yeah well that's that's true but it's like, so I'm, I'm, I'm talking about to be fair about 10 years ago um oh okay even, even when like when doing like web series and stuff it's like we're gonna have a big thing it's like I mean, you got like maybe a seven-minute runtime. Why are you doing a two-minute title sequence thing? Because it makes us more legitimate and professional. And, and now there's a thing in YouTube to get over certain runtimes, so you can run a couple of extra ads, which sounds yep. familiar. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's the We're literally point. just talking about TV stuff. It's like now that's happening to YouTube as well. You have to go over ten minutes so you can fit a mid-roll ad in there because mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. how you get paid and all this shit. And it's like, yeah, I noticed. There's, I haven't really noticed like title sequences stuff in vlog and YouTubers but everyone has a very particular way of doing an intro and I know I do this in podcasts everybody knows my hello everybody and welcome <laughs> to Sequelizers blah 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 as always your host Jack Chambers joining me mm. as always blah 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 I do the same thing every time sure every fucker does that and I notice how everyone on YouTube does like hey guys hello guys hi guys hi guys <laughs> hi guys and they just call them guys and that of course drove me mental for years which is why I go for hello everybody <laughs> you know um, oh, but yeah there's a particular like there was definitely an influence there. And I know the kind of things you were talking about from a few years ago where mm. suddenly it's like, oh, it's professionally done. It's not just exactly. it's not just a bloke or a woman holding a camera. Oh my god. <laughs> They've got actual production value on YouTube. My God. And I know as a man who has a series on YouTube, Matt, you've got a <laughs> you've got an opening I title sequence to Super Happy Kill Time. Yeah. Made like by a, our friend Dan. It was, it was fantastic. And it's like thirty it, seconds long, I want to say. It's it's yeah. like Blah, 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 logo bum. Yeah, it's a, 
It's going to be energetic, big, pumping, colourful, and like, yeah, and silly. But also short. <laughs> and short. And nice um, bit of wailing guitar there as well. Yeah. But title sequences are, are a fun, beautiful thing to play with. And I think every filmmaker ultimately... I don't know a lot of them would see them as a burden. Because even when you frame up stuff that you want to cover for like... Oh, Netflix okay. producers do. <laughs> that's true. There's so many things you can do with it that say so much. So I think it's only fair that we l- share some of our favourite ones with you. Fine, fine guys. Um, <laughs> hey guys, here's some of our favourite opening title sequences. Be sure to like and subscribe and kiss my balls. <laughs> so, uh, Tim, why don't you kick us off with an interesting or favourite title sequence that you've picked out? So, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, do mine in a, in a specific order, which is from kind of uh, interesting, least intrusive to most intrusive. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. okay. I'm ready. I'm ready. Uh, so, my first one is uh, Serenity. Not the recent batshit Anne Hathaway and Matthew McConaughey film. Which is what um, I thought you meant when you first put yeah. this on the show notes. Isn't that notoriously terrible? Why has Tim picked that? <laughs> Maybe the title uh, sequence is good. Yeah, I mean, there's there's films that are bad. But I ain't fucking seen it, so I can't tell. <laughs> yeah, uh, but no, the uh, the Firefly uh, film, the continuation, mm-hmm. the Joss Whedon film of, I want to say, 2005. Correct. Yes. Uh, so a... a we kind of mentioned earlier of having a title sequence which gets straight into the film and doesn't intrude, doesn't in kind of insist upon itself. And the Serenity title sequence is set around a uh, a single long tracking shot which takes you through the the ship Serenity. It begins it begins on after a kind of pre uh, you know cold open which is very again very clever um mm. of these kind of different layers of dream and reality and memory kind of peeling back you get this cut to the name of the ship which it kind of uh, floats up as a graphic and then transitions to the name of the ship painted on the outside of it and we get mm-hmm. uh, a shot which kind of sweeps around through into the ship um and then follows uh, Nathan Fillion as as the captain yep. as he goes through the ship preparing to make a landing and it is essentially kind of a little, almost like a little short film in and of, of itself that, that kicks off the beginning of the actual film. Mm-hmm. And it, it's it's a wonder of storytelling because obviously you're dealing with a film where there has been a TV series before it. And so the characters are already established and you've got that kind of dual audience of there's people who there who have seen the TV series and know all the characters. And so don't want them to be, don't want, a film to kind of drip feed information to them in the traditional way that it would introduce characters. But then you also have a hopefully audience of people who didn't see the TV series who then need to be introduced mm. to these characters. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it does an incredibly efficient job of just setting up. It doesn't do all the, you know, character details that you'd need to know, but it moves through the ship, which establishes the kind of the physical dimensions of the ship itself. And, and mm-hmm. it's a, a very nice, uh, piece of kind of production design and set design. It establishes the characters like, okay, this person's the pilot. This this guy's clearly in charge, but this guy's the one flying the ship. Mm. This is the kind of brutish mercenary. Here's the engineer working in the engine room. Oh, this guy's a bit of a stick in the mud, et cetera, et cetera. And the set of that ship is famously like quite real and to scale as well. Yes. Yeah. And you can actually climb up through the levels and go to the bunks and then come down to engineering and blah, blah, blah. They did actually build like a multi-layer. Yeah. Well, it's, well, it's, it's, um, it's, it's built over 
two levels. So there's kind of a top half and a bottom yes, half, thank you, yeah. and, a, and a stair staircase that transitions between the two that you have to kind of. Mm. So there's a there's a you know one of those kind of clever hidden cuts in this single long shot as mm-hmm. they move from one set to the other. But it basically it sets up the initial kind of opening action of the film of of what this group of people are doing, and ends with River, who is going to be the kind of the dual main character along with Mal. Um, and that's the deuteragonist, if you will. Yes, mm, I think that's the uh, and word. that's where we get the the written by and directed by Joss Whedon uh, credit comes up there, um, and that's the end mm. of that tracking shot. And then we kind of jump into the the full blown action, the film, mm. and it's very cleverly paced. It's it's an example of you know if you're if you don't really care about the credits, you're not going to really notice them. The the that end shot with River is the only one where it really it kind of pairs up and the blocking of the shot is very deliberate so that there's kind of she's laying down and it's quite close in on her face but yes. then there's a big patch of darkness where written and directed by Joss Whedon can kind of fill in that space <laughs> and you and you notice yeah. it you know uh, yes entirely um but for the most part the opening credits are kind of small text and there's stuff going on screen that's very engaging and it's bringing you into the world of this film um and so I just think it's it's an incredibly clever sequence and a way to start a film that gets you straight into the action. It establishes information that you need to know, um, and it also kind of it guides you through. You you spend a lot of time with Mal. You get to know him as a protagonist, and then it drops you off with River and says, "And here's the other person that you need to be watching." So yeah, in terms of the actual titles, it's very basic. But in terms of what it achieves in that sequence while the titles are going on, it's an incredibly smart piece of filmmaking. It, it's very much um, well a few the, the few examples we gave earlier, uh, where it, as you say, it sets up the character traits and tropes quite easily. You can ca- you can kind of tell who everyone is once about. You got a lot of exposition just you know mm. thrown in every now and again, which is simplified because again it's the whole catch up for those who haven't uh, seen before and those who have etc etc. But uh, one thing we don't really, we will definitely come back to with well, probably every single one of these is the music, because David Newman's score is so triumphant when mm-hmm. the shit is going around, because obviously fans are like going, yes! We're getting the Firefly film, yeah! When part of it breaks off, and they're like, what, what was that? And there's sort of cavalier <laughs> attitude to the whole thing. The music takes a more playful turn, but the, the other thing is the font. Font ages a movie so fucking fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's your avatar and use papyrus, because what the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> um, but no, so it's could have been Comic Sans, Matt. Could have been Comic Sans. That's always true. It's always, it's always Comic Sans. Um, I, remember th- being... I wonder if a film's ever used Comic Sans. You, you bet your ass they have. So aggressively so as well, probably. Just a pretty I'm surprised the Watchmen film didn't. Cause... <laughs> <laughs> um, Zack Snyder was like, take it off the page. That, there's Don't a director exactly. we'll talk about later who I'm like, he would definitely have done it. Um, <laughs> that, but anyway, Tim's right with the, with the, um, the Serenity font. It's just a very plain white sort of slightly digitized font with this blue lightning mist sort of thing, as if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. You, it's, it's when you describe it, you think, that sounds shit. But because, <laughs> it, as you say, it's so unintrusive, it doesn't also really tie into anything. It's not the same mm. um, It's not the same font as as the word serenity, which also might be a bit papyrus if I'm honest. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's just like, hey, it's blue and futury and ooh, that kind of shit. Yeah. Um, if it could be a hologram, it would be kind of thing. But I, I think it is a very interesting thing. Tim, Tim's right, right. You, you film it in a certain way. It's like, where can I put this stuff in? Mm. If it's not already intentionally looking for those spots, they're filmed with those in mind. Yeah. And and I wonder the the fact that it does jump 
straight into the action. I wonder if that is coming from Joss Whedon being primarily a TV guy, and it's like mm. can't spare Probably, a minute. Yeah. Got to get straight into the action because I'm I'm trying to think. I'm pretty sure Avengers and Avengers Two don't they have, have cold opens. They have cold opens. They're straight into because Avengers it. Two is the one where they assault the Hydra base where yeah. they get mm-hmm. the, the twins. Yeah. And it's that, um, that great I shot remember, of them diving through the snow and all that kind of stuff. That was the big trailer shot. On on the original Buffy the Vampire title sequence, Joss Whedon wanted to have an alternate version for the first one. Mm. I know the music doesn't necessarily line up or something like that because that's a I big mean, thing for us. Speaking of the fucking music from the TV shows, mm. the Buffy theme. What a fucking jam. <laughs> Never skip that shit. And the thing is, again, if it gets assume. lodged in your head with a TV, it will stick with you. Well, because a film doesn't have a chance to do that because you're only really theory watching it once. Yeah. Unless it's, you know, multiple well, there's a There's a lot of episodes of Buffy and I've heard that theme song a <laughs> hundred and whatever times. And you kind of never get sick of it. If anything, you love it more. But he wanted one where it's like, I'm, I don't remember which one it, it is. It's an actor who turns up in it. And he plays like Xander's best friend or some shit who isn't Willow. And he gets tend to a vampire. It's like, oh, fuck. But they wanted him to be in the title sequence to make you think he was a major part of the show. And then oh, the yeah. second title sequence by episode two, like, oh, wait, no, he's dead? What? But there's like the studio, obviously, Fox said, that's expensive. Are you fucking stupid? No. Yeah. For one Cause thing. If, yeah, because if a, if a character is in the lead titles, they get a significant like pay bump and stuff. Again, mm, going yeah, back to these exactly. legal requirements. Right, stuff. yeah, yeah. Um, but I love the idea of toying with the audience like that. So. And he finally did it. And this is spoilers for Buffy the Vampire Slayer, if you haven't seen it. Uh, <laughs> 20 years you, ago. In season six, when he kills off Tara, yes. she is finally in the opening titles um, after being a kind of guest starring you know, yeah. um, role for, for the entirety of her uh, being there in the episode where she dies. She mm-hmm. finally gets promoted to lead title and then killed <laughs> off. So, Jack, do you want to take us from Serenity? Which, again, I must admit, I would have thought it was one of your picks because, of course... Oh, yeah. Serenity is a, a favourite of mine. Love people, Firefly and Serenity. People fucking know I love Firefly. Mm. I'm going to have something else I love. And I'll start with my most modern and work my way back because not all of mine are from this like century, which is mm-hmm. interesting for me. I know, right? I'm going to talk about some one of my favorite kind of out of nowhere films. I went in with no expectations, had no idea what was going on. This weird little indie film. I never heard of it. Like, what the hell is this? Why are those two words together? Napoleon Dynamite. What the fuck does that mean? <laughs> and then the the white stripes. We're going to be friends, the little mm. lovely little kind of... Mm. It's about two people who meet and become best friends at high school. Surprise, surprise. That's mm. Pedro and Napoleon, like, <laughs> <laughs> joining together. And the, like, the the food, so all, all the different names of the actors are, like, spelled in condiments on different mm. plates of food, and you go through and see, like, oh, it's all, like, different school dinners and all this kind of stuff. You see, yeah. like, a, bur- a burrito and a little metal tray and all this kind of stuff. Yep. And it's just really nice and, and sweet. And uh, I thinking like Napoleon Dynamite going back to our previous episode could be one of my feel good movies as well because it's mm, just okay. so like that's really chill but it's it's so low stakes and so like there's some nice music he does a silly dance like there's no like big huge tragedies in that film or any like you know anything like that and that that kind of sets that tone for that film straight away you get the nice little kind of setup and like oh this is going to mm. be one of those 2000s indie films <laughs> i felt like a lot of those things had that kind of quirky little intro yeah i think mm-hmm. of like like juno and and scott pilgrim was another pick of mine of thinking like oh, i love that intro where they they kick into the song and then it goes all like cartoony mm-hmm. with the the sound effect blocks and all that kind of stuff you had um recently spider-man homecoming kind of emulating that mm-hmm. uh, with the with the end credits as well yeah um but i, I think 
Yeah, depends on the point. I, I didn't get with the film too much of a time. I still kind of don't, but I can understand exactly what you're saying about the feel good nature. Of it. I, I loved but, it at the time. I hadn't yeah. seen it in a long time, so maybe I won't love it as much. But. Um, yeah, no. <laughs> but the but the title sequence, I genuinely think is fantastic. It's a very Wes Anderson kind of thing because absolutely yes, yeah. Royal Tenenbaums came out in like 2001. This was three years later or so. And I know again that's an homage to a very different thing. Anyway, it's 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 all part and parcel uh, older influences. But it's the kind of thing that actually benefits from a rewatch when you already know about the characters. Like, oh, it's a steak because, of course, it's a fucking steak. That yeah. actually means a lot <laughs> yes, for the character. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the tater tots and all that kind of stuff. It it tells you almost Mission Impossible style what's coming in the movie without mm. you realizing what's coming in the movie. <laughs> I think I think it's so good at establishing both tone and setting that mm. title sequence yes. because yeah. it's very like the type of food that they show and the objects that they show mm. is very specific it's this kind of shitty like school dinner type food at the beginning and like all of the like it's often it's like stuff being put on like carpet and stuff and it's yeah. all yeah. this horrible like faded 70s and 80s carpets and it just establishes that world of just kind of you know it's set in what is it idaho i believe it's it's, it's the classic middle america diner you're like what the fuck is this yeah <laughs> and it's, serving me it, it instantly establishes that kind of like yeah this is not this is a this is a film about teenagers but this is a film about teenagers that is not in a glamorized version or it's mm. a heightened version of reality sure. but it's not a glamorized version in the in the way that a lot of teen films are where the 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 schools are kind of, you know, fancy and, and you know, uh, all this kind of thing. And their bedrooms are um, amazing and huge and, and all that yeah. kind of stuff. It's very like, you no, know, you're just kind of like in this town that's kind of run down in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, the the we get to see a few of like Napoleon's drawings in the opening titles. I was going to say, yeah, you, they then trans, kind of transform from the food to like mm-hmm. folding out the paper and the notebooks and all that kind yeah. of stuff as well. Yeah, His, yeah. Li- his little folded up throwing star uh, made of like tin. <laughs> foil and it's like you so instantly get like what these characters are about um and like the fact that like a couple of them are like uh the little like library cards that you get inside library books and the books are stuff like the science of centaurs and bigfoot and me and stuff (laughs) like that um and uh yeah it's 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 so perfect at just setting up what the world that you're about to enter is is going to be like Mm -hmm. yeah I, i i love the way it kind of just just so smoothly transitions from each thing to another and as you said you get the the backgrounds of the carpets and like the somebody's having a packed lunch because there's a little brown paper bag underneath mm. the the, <laughs> the sandwich and all that kind of, or there's like the tray of food if you're getting school dinners from the actual cafeteria and all that kind of stuff and and you, you say it's like you know what you're going to get from this film. It establishes tone, it establishes setting. You get, and as you said, Matt, kind of like an impression of because the the food lines up with the actors who play the character that the food relates to, but you don't know that yet. So you're going to find out that oh yeah, well Pedro is doing the guy who plays Pedro is Pedro, and Pedro eats this, and you're going to find out why <laughs> and blah blah blah. And um, I think it works really well to kind of. Like I said, I went in completely blind with this film, and I was like, "Oh, okay, yeah." I, I, you can instantly get an idea of, "Okay, I see what I'm getting in for in this." Like, it's not going to suddenly be like, uh, t- as you said, Mission Impossible suddenly <laughs> kick into some <laughs> ass kicking action or something like yeah. that. You kind of know you're getting this fairly low key teenagers high school drama comedy kind of thing going on. Mm. So, Mr. Stogden, over to you. Um, I'm going to go in order. Uh, order. Order. I'm going to go in chronological order for mine. So mm. my oldest one is... Then reverse chronological on your ass. So you're going chronological on my ass. <laughs> Ooh. 
Oh. Interesting. Yes, I'm going with uh, late 70s. Now, this is a bit of a weird one because it is so minimalist. Mm-hmm. And I do mean minimalist. <laughs> and it's so atmospheric. And yet it tells you everything you need to know. And it's fucking terrifying. And yet, really, <laughs> it's one image. So you've got Jerry Goldsmith. The composer, who I love the your, fuck out your of. Your boy, yeah. yeah. He's my boy with his ponytail. Um, <laughs> Jerry Goldsmith's awesome. Um, and his deep tonal score that doesn't really feel like it's very much anything other than ambient noise. And you get, effectively, the shot of this alien planet. But it's so ah. big it doesn't... Uh, 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 that's a pun, Matthew. Yeah, this, 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 uh, this, this, just this unknown, unknown sphere. But it's so big that it <laughs> replace fit. alien planet with unknown, unknown sphere. sphere. <laughs> hey, you're busting out the thesaurus there. Accurate. <laughs> <laughs> it is a um, galactic orb, no, <laughs> unidentified orb, a celestial body mm. so anyway you've got this giant uh, planet and it's so large that it doesn't fit in the screen and so when you're pan it just literally pans from left to right and as it does these white marks appear at the top of the screen oh, it's so cool man it's so fucking cool it's so cool and in addition what, oh, by what, the way where, people where might are go, these white marks going what's yeah, going on people might think i don't know what he's talking about um and then it says on the screen the various cast director producer all that kind of sort of stuff and as it pans through as it were from left to right it gets to the middle point and you can't really see the the, the planet anymore it's, it's too it's too big and it's then on the other side of it you start to think oh more more planet it's the other side of it and all you get is this horrible sense of dread of everything being so very big and empty <laughs> and alone and the music takes a dark dark fucking turn and finally you can read the word alien oh, and that so to me had me gripped as a teenager the fact it that sounds... they do it one line at a time just yeah. mm, it just builds attention so nicely and it, it comes re- off the fox logo as well which is like these big drums and shit great oh no i'm not i was like when the fox logo fades out and then it's just quiet and you're like uh-oh here we go yeah what is this um, so, so Alien for me is is I fucking conic, and every Alien film kind of afterwards has done the same sort of thing. A lot of films have tried to imitate it in other ways and shapes and forms. It has dictated again horror, just suspense. It's like the fact is it is unknown, and you can it, much like um, we discussed in the Thing episode. I was I was about to mention the Thing. I've been waiting yeah. to bring that up because. I mentioned it in my pitch for yeah. the things from last season where like, and my title fades up in the iconic style of the original movie and you know, that kind <laughs> yep. of stuff. Because that, that like burn. melting phosphorus burn across the mm. screen, that and the alien one are like the two title cards, I guess. Like, sure, like sure. The, the reveal of the logo, quote unquote, that always mm. stick out in my mind of like that thing logo and the alien one letter at a time thing melted my brain as a kid. <laughs> I was like, you can do that? You can just have the title of the film at the beginning of the film? This mm-hmm. is madness. It's like, Yeah, and, and I like that it tells you everything you need to know, which is sit the fuck down and be the fuck afraid. Yeah. Um, and then it, you know, then you get the shot of the ship and things and the film starts. But this is the point. This is, this is the first impression of the movie. And it's one of those wonderful moments 
for me personally, I think the 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 idea of wanting to share things with friends or family or kids or who the fuck ever who haven't seen this kind of film before. It's like, oh, my 15-year-old cousin's going to watch it. It's like, is he old enough to watch this? Yeah, yeah, sit, sit down, you'll be fine. <laughs> that kind of thing. You're like, okay. And you and you want to almost not watch it. You want to turn and watch their yeah. reaction. They're like, <laughs> the, the fuck is this? Why isn't it starting? Oh, it is starting. What is this? And and just being lost in it. And other some people, there are definitely people out there who go, this is boring because you know people are dumb. But to me, that that is those are the people that like aliens more than alien. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the aliens is a, a sort of version, but it's much faster. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think ultimately, Alien, as I say, is a perfect harmony of concept, slow, slow build storytelling, as it were, and haunting visuals and music in, and in think, a weirdly similar way to napoleon dynamite and i don't think those two films have mm. ever been compared <laughs> it sets the tone and it gets the setting like you, yep. you have the like oh god this is ominous as fuck already yeah and then you're in space <laughs> here's, a planet, here's some space here's some yep. of the like rings or nebula or whatever yeah, happening yeah, in the yeah, background right, and stuff right. like this is this is um like in space, no one can hear you scream, but a title sequence like it's set. It gets the the, the sci fi setting already, and you get the spooky ness, the spooky atmosphere just built already, and mm. in the polar fucking opposite of Napoleon Dynamite. But they they have the same result, the same and they impact, they achieve exactly. the same thing. I think just from pretty, two pretty completely different sides. <laughs> yeah, I think Ridley Scott's pretty good with that stuff. I think he knows what to 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 do with it, but he 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 does tend to have pretty pretty informative title sequences incidentally we should point out and we're going to say this at the end as well but we have compiled a playlist so if you're thinking to yourself oh i might want to watch some of these don't worry you'll be able to we'll have yeah. a link in the in the show notes that so you can just binge the most tonally whiplashing <laughs> things <laughs> that we've suggested i but, think um, that we're gonna be friends <laughs> yeah Brilliant. um so let's go back around to tim tim what's your mildly intrusive title sequence uh yes uh my next one is a spielberg one mm. uh, mm. and it's catch me if you can oh uh, a, a film very... i forget that was made by spielberg yeah uh, <laughs> a film Leonardo I forget DiCaprio exists, and tom hanks uh people like that sequence a lot light-hearted thriller i guess you'd describe it as. sure yeah 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 kind of comedy yeah, thing. <laughs> it's kind of comedy thing. It's what just a compliment! Throwback from to the sixties, to be fair. Yes, general, yeah, so. and and the and you know the credits are part of that throwback. List. Oh, entirely. They entirely. Are, we mentioned Saul Bass earlier. They are very influenced by both Bass and his imitators from that mm-hmm. kind of mid sixties period, um, and they are they are essentially they tell the story of the film in animation form yes. briefly um, before it happens. Um, we get this wonderful stylized animation, which was actually done with um, uh, stamps um, for Ooh. a lot of the figures um, in the animation, which are quite simple stylized kind of block figures um, and were animated using lots of different kind of stamps on, you know, like you'd get for, I don't know what people use stamps for anymore, but like, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, you roll in the ink and then you stamp on the thing. Sure. And then those were kind of lifted up and then, you know, put into a kind of digital animation program and stuff like that. But but there's a certain amount of uh, texture and 
uh, a kind of realness to them that carries mm. across. And so yeah. kind of you get that sense of older methods of filmmaking that, you know, existed before digital animation mm. um, would, would have been available. Um, but it, it runs through the, um, uh, like I said, the plot of the film. We get to see the character representing kind of Leonardo DiCaprio's um, uh, Frank Habergnell, um as he disguises himself as a pilot and then he disguises himself as a doctor and then he disguises mm. himself as a lawyer and we see the uh, the Tom Hanks character pursuing him at all times and uh, and then you know towards the end of the film that it get, uh, towards the end of the title sequence it gets a little bit more kind of tense and a little bit more uh, the characters are more kind of isolated you know it starts out very kind of swinging 60s and there's mm. you know pool parties and stuff like that and then it, it tightens down so it's just this chase between these two figures um and you have a wonderful score um playing underneath it uh matt will tell me who it was because i've forgotten I'm pretty Jerry confident Goldsmith. it wasn't. No, I don't think it was John Williams at that point. Um, mm. But I could be wrong because I know obviously Williams worked very exclusively um, uh, with with Spielberg and all that sort of yeah. thing on those things regularly. Um, but I don't think it was him this time. No, no, no. It was John fucking Williams. It was John oh, Williams. Yeah. There we go. I, yeah. I, I thought it was, but I wasn't certain. Yeah, I've um, never heard of him because it's not really his usual style at all. No, it's this very. Light um, mm. and again very evocative of these sixties films, but also gets that kind of uh, the intrigue kind of thriller um, nature of it, while still being this very kind of light hearted, playful um, mm-hmm. score. And um, it's just a beautifully constructed opening sequence. There were there were several that were like this, that were these kind of throwback uh, type title sequences that I considered. The the other main one was Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Oh, yeah. um, which does a very similar thing, um, but I, I feel like this one just the the score and the um, just the brightness of it is. I, I think that there's um, it's quite easy to make a dour or a, a depressing opening title sequence or one that one that's kind of ominous. You know, or, or, yeah. As much as we just said how masterful Alien is, <laughs> like there's a lot of imitators of it and a lot of you know people have learned the tricks of how to make you know a kind of bleak, depressing title sequence. Making something that's very playful, I think, is kind of harder, and you end up mm. with a lot of stuff that feels very generic. But to have something that's both memorable but this very kind of light in tone. Um, is pretty tricky, and so yeah, catch catch me if you can stand out uh, mm. to me in that regard. Jack, hey Tim, what is what is your uh, stepping backwards in time? Where do we get? Where do we land? For my next title sequence, you just need one word, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you need. And speaking of like iconic, kind of often imitated title sequences. Mm. Few are more iconic and, and more imitated, I think, than the various Monty Python, you know, animated sequences and all this mm. silly shit that they've done over the years that has now become like just the lifeblood of comedy as we know it, basically. But The Life of Brian always sticks out. It's my favorite Monty Python film. It always kind of sticks out in my mind with that absolutely insane. And it's like well over two minutes long intro <laughs> sequence with these the giant towering rocks the 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 title of the film in in giant block letters floating through the sky and all this silly ridiculous bullshit that is now like so again like ingrained in my brain as just a, a part of pop culture 
Mm. And the the silly little Monty Python song that goes with it and the just the pacing of the whole thing is brilliant where it goes starts off quite slowly and drifting along and then picks up the pace and there's moments where like the camera shakes and stuff like that and yeah life of brian is just just sublime ridiculous over the top opening credits and i can just again it's one i can hum and and sing from (laughs) from start to finish ever since i was a kid it's very interesting because obviously it it is a twofold parody basically so i wouldn't have thought at the time you would have saw life of brian i'm gonna be assuming um that you would have been like oh i get what this is referencing absolutely um, not no no exactly you just think this is funny and cool and awesome and visually amazing so obviously it tells the story of brian the boy they call brian the babe <laughs> call brian, the brian. man they call brian it evolves exactly whereas it the, the big infinite rock text that doesn't even fit on the fucking screen yeah yeah <laughs> That's lambasting all the, the because again, very unpopular at this point, the waning sword and sandals thing from the fifties and, and things. Yeah, especially. Ben Hurs and yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and this thing, a larger than life screen, and you know, in kind of formatting that you can't actually show in a cinema because it's too goddamn wide and it could <laughs> never be shown on television and that kind of thing. Not that TV was really an option for, for a lot of these things. And um, you know, they're so big, so sprawling, so epic this has to be the same thing. And rather than going for the big uh, Maurice Jarre style, Lawrence Arabia style, big heavy drums and very, mm. you know, bombastic score, they go with the Bond theme. Yeah. And I find that fascinating because it's the most out of place thing, but it works so It works perfectly. so brilliantly because it is melding. As you said, like at the time, I had no idea that was a parody of that kind of stuff. Mm. And then knowing you're like, yeah, let's let's just do a Ben-Hur title sequence mashed up with a Bond theme. You're like, who the fuck thought that was a thought that was a good idea? And let's just make it animated, like like it's been like paper cut almost, like, <laughs> like stop motion almost. It's mad. Yeah, it's like a three way mashup between, <laughs> like you say, the the kind of the, the 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 Python animation style, which they you know the the Gilliam's very strong Gilliam, Gilliam's yes, animation yeah. style, which kind of been established at that point, and yeah, and then the the big biblical sword and sandals epic. Mm-hmm. Stylization of of the kind of like you say the, the the text and both the you know it's it features a lot of you know it's Roman pillars and statues and stuff like that yes. and and the iconography that you'd associate with that mm. and yet this weird Bond theme as well <laughs> and it's it, and it's it, full of fucking jokes as well. There's yeah, just bits and, that are falling off and all this silly oh, yeah. stuff that's hilarious. And it could this it could so easily feel like a a hat on a hat. You know, it could feel like hang on this is so many different things like mm-hmm. one funny thing on top of another funny thing i don't but but it manages to pull it off because it's because python is so rooted in that surrealism and that absurdity that it manages to blend together into its into its own thing um i think if you went into it not knowing what monty python was like <laughs> it would not be the best title sequence because you'd just be like what the fuck is happening right mm. now um, i think that's you... how i felt when i first because life of <laughs> Brian, i think was my first python film yeah i'd, I'd heard some of the radio stuff mm. first because my parents were really into the radio stuff so i'd heard of them and heard yeah. them but had no idea what the fuck was going on when this <laughs> showed up um but i think i think if you if you come in with some awareness of what to expect it perfectly makes sense as mm-hmm. as an opening title sequence because it does it just says like whatever you think that you know we're gonna undercut 
and so get used get used to that. It's it's a statement of irreverence. Yes, like, we know what we're supposed to do here. We're not going to, which yeah. is literally like, oh, you're doing a biblical epic. Yeah, we know what we're <laughs> I mean, supposed to do. Yeah, we're not sure. going to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, and the story love of Jesus? That... No. <laughs> <laughs> I love they play with the whole the the bond thing. Obviously, the class thing is like the bullet going through and like mm. going through a lady's legs and then exploding <laughs> through a wall or whatever. And it's like, mm. yeah, head fall has fallen. Well, it starts off Brian being like falling down the the bee from the word Brian falling down and then himself falling through you know as a baby and then going yeah. through and growing up and you think oh right we're going to follow his journey and it's going to be a vertical thing and then he gets hit by a head from a statue that's fallen <laughs> off and then that starts like picking up more shit in like a snowball effect of like oh it just knocked off the it's knocked off a chunk of that bit and mm-hmm. then like yeah. those those monoliths collapsed mm-hmm. and then it picks up another bit and it keeps scrolling, keeps scrolling, keeps scrolling. And then like a penis plant just shows up out of nowhere <laughs> yeah. and, go, and goes into a demon's mouth. And you're like, yep, that's the thing. And then it opens up and there's an angel. And then, of course, one final joke right at the very end. She gets burnt by the sun and goes, ah, and falls ah! off. Because <laughs> yeah. he goes, oh, she's really, singing it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, this whole time that the angel in this little plant, and obviously we mentioned like, oh, when does the director name show up? Turns up with Terry Jones as the director in the little flower, and you're like, yeah. oh, that's a nice little touch. Mm-hmm. And then ah, at the end, and that's <laughs> it. Again, it perfectly sets the tone. You have no idea what the fuck this film is going to look like. You're like, is this <laughs> film animated? What's going on here? Yeah, I don't think it establishes the setting very well. <laughs> but that it's not supposed to. It's just supposed to be funny and kind of set the tone for. Yeah. Don't take this film too seriously because yeah, you might be going on... in as you said, Matt, going and think like, oh, it's a biblical epic. Oh my god, yeah, I'm a huge Ben Hur fan. I, I love <laughs> biblical. Uh, you know, whatever. I can't wait to see the new. I don't know. <laughs> what are the biblical? I'm trying to think biblical epics. Ten Commandments. Sure. Yeah. yeah Ten Commandments. The, the robe and things like that. Yeah. Big I wonder, I wonder how many people went in thinking this was that kind of thing <laughs> i think because like, you'd, you'd have to see the poster but not actually read it you just have to see like the big blocky letters and go sounds good i, I think, mean i think enough people f- might do that public are fucking stupid they I was like, oh, this film called life of brian must be about jesus i was like no they actively say in the first five minutes that yeah. it's not it's the life of brian <laughs> um and but there's still got protests and all kinds of fucking backlash for it because you know the public but um it's yeah it's, it's subversion of expectation um, and it's interesting that it's something that it can exist as just wacky irreverence without that understanding of the preconceived bits that come before yeah. it. That you know, well, you need the language, you need to understand what's come before in order to appreciate the joke. It's like, nah, that thing <laughs> fell on his head. It's funny, and that's yeah. that's kind of the point of Python, if I'm honest. But well, in, definitely when it comes to the, to Gilliam's artwork and 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 him incorporating that into the Python stuff. So I completely understand that one. That makes perfect sense. How about you next, Mr. Stockton? What have you uh, got for us? Going to the 90s. Oh, um, okay, okay. And You're in my era now, baby. Speaking Let's... of Bond music. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> Here's the thing. I might get some flack for this. So we're talking about opening title sequences. And yes, we've made mention to a Bond and sequence. It would be wrong almost not to highlight at least one say, James yeah, Bond sequence. But the problem is we could spend a whole episode talking about this. And... Maybe we will. Maybe listeners. we might. Maybe we <laughs> might have some some Bond related content coming up. Mm. Who knows? Who Bond knows? Is. Not us. Or do we? 
We do know. <laughs> but anyway, I get it. We sit down to record and say, what should we talk about? I don't know. Let's do this. Yeah, fuck yeah. it. Just wing it. Whatever, you know. Um, so there are 25, 26, whatever it is. I am, I'm like, keep losing track. 25 now? We're, sure. With the upcoming one? I think it's 25th. Yeah. Um, we there expect are the 25th. Right. Plenty of bonds. Mm-hmm. Um, and they set a precedent for what you expect, like a tick box exercise of what to expect. If there's like, oh, here's the title. It's like, it just says the title of the movie and moves on. Yes, that's right. That's not a Bond movie. No, 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 no. And just screaming for hours. And he has to have a special watch. And say, like, oh, fucking hell. <laughs> so you, you, you're bound by the limitations. <laughs> he has to have a special watch. <laughs> Is that really people complaining about? Like, his yes. watch isn't special enough. Yes. <laughs> when they changed from like 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 a Rolex to a Casio, well, not Casio, to, to an Amiga or something, I was like, that's ah, not a Bond watch. It and now Amigas are worth like thousands and thousands of pounds. Yeah, it's, there's always something someone's complaining about, always some bullshit, and it never matters. But the thing is that, that, that you know, obviously the brands sell the movie as well, so you have to focus on these things for a very long period of time. But the Bond sequences are... Uh, Again, we talk about the freedom to do what you want, to immerse yourself, to to set the tone that this is that kind of movie. Can't uh, can't really do that with Bond because you have ultimately ten things you need to do. Yeah, it needs to be quite dark visually with a black background usually mm. <laughs> most of the time. It has to incorporate a rough theme, obviously characters and things. It has to have sexual ladies. If <laughs> Um, has to have projections of stuff, silhouettes. There's so many things that they just like have to throw in a blender to make it work. And mm. most of the time it does really, really well. And it is also, I should point out, a fucking music video <laughs> to a song they that always has to are. Be released. Yeah. And I must admit, we just, just very recently we talked about Spectre for a minute, because Spectre's not a great film. Sam Smith's song <laughs> is right meh. On. It's meh. I it's made good it's because the score is good. So when the score bits come in with the lilting, that's fucking great. I love when that bit. That's here, brilliant. I love that stuff. It's so However, Bond. <laughs> if you see the Radiohead version, as in the, the song oh, Radiohead yeah. working on, that they put it in there. I love that version much more. It's so much, it's so much better. And you pace, if you time up with the actual title sequence, it's like, why don't we have this? It's good. Anyway. You have a lot to choose from, and there will always be fan favourites for a lot of reasons. And I will happily, happily uh, admit that this may not be the best one, but it's my favourite one. Interesting. And it's my favourite one because of my age entirely. <laughs> there is, I'm not even like even trying to hide this shit. This is pure nostalgia. So we know you uh, play the N64, Matt. All right, we get it. We get it. Actually, no, I didn't have an N64. <laughs> Fine, fucking hell. Um, What's right, wrong so, with so, you? Yeah. Basically, how do you like Goldeneye? Not not having an N64. How dare you? Friends had it. I played it a bit. Yeah, so fair I, enough. It was actually very good. It was very good. Same. So, <laughs> Goldeneye came out in 1995, and I was 11 Goldeneye. years old. Goldeneye. He takes off his pants. I don't know Ooh. what the lyrics are. <laughs> Nobody knows what the lyrics are. You don't wear any pants. Goldeneye. <laughs> maybe he's naked. Um, under okay, his I can read the lyrics for you if you like. No, written. It's sung by Tina Turner. But written by Bono, um, which what you the found fuck? That today. Yeah, I, it it makes sense when Tina Turner sings. Oh, I can see why Tina Turner might write that, but she didn't. Oh, I don't see why Bono wrote that. That becomes very yeah. creepy now. <laughs> I'm very uncomfortable with this. Um, so yes, Golden Eye was 11 years old. Now I'd seen a lot of Bond as a kid. Um, my dad liked it. It was on TV a lot, mm. and there were tropes and things that make it very familiar. So it was a staple of a British household, and subsequently. I was used to these title sequences. I was used to them feeling, you know, 
fun and weird. And again, you mm. you start to realize the patterns very quickly because my God, you're force fed the patterns very fucking quickly. Mm. Um, but and this was... it's something that's super parodied in you know oh, pop culture. So much so, yeah. so much so, yeah. emulated and parodied both over. And I was 11 years old. I went to the cinema. This is I, this was the year before I started going on my own at the age of 12. Um, but I went with my dad and my brother. I want to say and sitting in a cinema and seeing a Bond theme done on a big fucking screen blew me the fuck away. <laughs> <laughs> so you had the opening cold open, which was fantastic as it was. Oh Double man, six the, the, the jump off the downs is so exactly. good. The plane it's flies so back good. up. Brilliant. Um, I fucking love Goldeneye. Goldeneye's great. Um, the director of Green Lantern. Is that the hang for a second? <laughs> <sighs> but also director of Casino Royale. Very yeah. true. Yeah. That is very, very true. But director of Green Lantern. Um, maybe very sad. <laughs> so the thing cuts off with a, um, a big explosion down a barrel of a gun with a bullet flying on the What the fuck? And it does the typical Bond thing, which is like, you know, oh, strange imagery you don't really understand. What's that? A woman's face is turning. And she's like pulling a, a cigar out of her mouth. And the other side is like a Janusz style thing, where it's another woman's face and it's got a gun barrel coming out of the mouth. <laughs> like, this is weird. But it was bigger and larger than life. And the other thing that I loved was the storytelling aspect of it, which was the dismantling of the Soviet Union. Yeah. Or the I, iconography. I really like yeah. yeah, and I love that shit. I think that's fantastic. It, it doesn't have any of the cast. All the women aren't the women that are in the movie. It doesn't have Bond himself. It's got the silhouette of a man, which is, to be fair, quite a regular feature. I mean, yeah, um, that's pretty common. Until till Daniel Craig, to be fair. Um, but You need his face in it, damn it. Get that man silhouette. It's too iconic. Um, <laughs> we paid for his blonde, blonde hair. Um, but and no, his I, blue, I really blue loved eyes. <laughs> and... There were things like, you know, giant mustachioed individuals like fucking Stalin and, and Lenin and shit like that. And it's like, what is all this? And they're like, these women were like taking sledgehammers and smashing to pieces and hammers and sickles. And I was like, literally the fall of the Soviet mm. Union. And you didn't necessarily maybe understand it all, but the film was explaining it to you. And it's like, no, it's being dismantled. And there's a lot of things that are going wrong. Yada, yada, yada. Um, so for me, that is, again, kind of like Alien. It sets the tone from about to see because you had the call open already and it's like, this is so big and so cool. And I watched it recently. It's still pretty cool. We'll leave it there. Um, but, I mean, it's, <laughs> there's still like, you know, it has the, uh, the, 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 the iconic stuff where like a gunfire goes off and everything, all the, the sort of sexualized, I can definitely see a bit of nippleage lady stuff going on. <laughs> and then it would gunfire and they sort of dart to the side, almost like a half ballet sort of slide. And it would go to a silhouette and you see like these flames and oil. And say, That's cool. I, I like the visual imagery. It was, it was fascinating. And then that, that kind of production that goes into it is genuinely manufactured to be awe-inspiring. So for an 11-year-old kid, it's, it's astonishing. But it also sets the tone of like, but politics is a very important thing about this. That's why spies do spying. And you're like, oh, okay. He's not just an adventurer for hire who goes around the world fucking women for codes or well. secret doors <laughs> and lasers, which he does as well. But it's he fucks mostly... women for lasers. <laughs> hey, uh, MGM, Each you guys are need, need someone to write a bond for you. I'm on it. He fucks women for, for lasers. lasers. <laughs> Do you expect me to talk? <laughs> for lasers. <laughs> for lasers. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was very, very, very important to me. And again, I think that film still holds up a shit ton and still very cool to me yeah i i think the 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 use of the soviet stuff is so clever because it also 
it, the thing we got to remember is it, it was a new Bond. It was uh, mm-hmm. Pierce Brosnan's mm-hmm. first outing yes, as Bond. I hadn't, even, I hadn't even thought about that. After yeah. you know, uh, a big Dalton, Dalton hadn't hadn't really taken off, and there'd been a decent sized gap between James Bonds at that point, and it. It is essentially acknowledging the new reality that James Bond lives in, where so many of his films and so much of the the tone of his films was about, you know, oh, the Cold War. There's, you know, this um, uh, there's still this kind of monolithic enemy out there in the form of the Soviet Union. Mm. And that was no longer true. And it acknowledges that new kind of political reality and, and essentially says, like, we know that the world has changed. So our Bond is going to change with it, but also he's going to, like this. This is going to be the film that kind of says, "Okay, you know, the 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 world has shifted, and Bond is also going to have to deal with that shift, like explicitly in this film. Mm. You know, there's there's going to be some post-Soviet stuff in here, um, and it's a very clever way of immediately setting that up yeah. and and tempering audience expectations of like what they're going to have to deal with because. You know, Bond so often lived in complete fantasy that, you know, obviously I say, you know, it was influenced by Cold War, but, you know, mm-hmm, it was also, mm-hmm. it was, you know, giant ships that swallowed other ships and yeah, yeah, lasers. Oh, like moon, invisible cars, know? maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it always goes back there. Yeah. 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 It's, it's funny how you're saying, like, yeah, they start off with, like, it's like a grounded Brosnan, and I'm thinking, oh, fucking hell, not for long. It got, <laughs> it got away I, from I, them. I, t- I totally agree. That's why Goldeneye is far and away the best Brosnan bond. Yeah. I think basically I, I anyone think can agree with that. We'll definitely come back to this at a later date, but... Um, <clears throat> bond episode. Yes. The Brosnan episode, the Brosnan Bonds do get a lot of shtick. If you put them on paper, however, it was like, this is the 90s, the Cold War is over. It's like, shit, who's the bad guy now? And I'm like, we don't fucking know anymore. Yeah. Neither does he. He's a dragon. He's like an old antiquated thing that doesn't fit in. And you know what? Good. Like, okay. Maybe then you could have argued we'll go for a new title sequence. But yeah, I get it. It's so North it's- Korea. No, wait, it's Rupert Murdoch. Well, that's the whole point. It's like, so who are the things? Embittered Russians who want the, you know, the, the sort of Soviet Union back in, in, the, in the chaos of it all. What's next? The Chinese. What's mm. next? The media. What's next? North Korea. And you're like, fair play. Yep. Yeah. You may have predicted the 2020s. <laughs> <laughs> but then, of course, they had also a fucking space laser and invisible cars. And you're like, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> and then again, Craig starts off with the most grounded, realistic Bond. This he gets bumps and cuts and scratches and stuff. He, he gets, gets his knackers hit. He gets, he gets his balls <laughs> tortured. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. And we're doing it in black and white because he can't handle his balls in colour. <laughs> um, I, I particularly love the, like speaking of the Soviet hmm. stuff, the, the, the sexy women with hammers knocking yeah. down statues just towards the end it's like yep that, if that doesn't perfectly merge the like where we are now politically and the bond necessity for having <laughs> sexy ladies doing things it's like yep there we go yeah. and the thing is you can tell they're like not, not used to really swinging a hammer around some of them look like they take a like, hit <laughs> slow round great I was like mm. I have to hold this and not hit mm. anything properly with it it's well, a prop you can I also it's tell made of foam. It's right? Not a real, yeah, it's not a real sledgehammer. <laughs> Precisely, yeah. <laughs> it's foam hammers hitting foam bits of <laughs> quote unquote stone. Yeah, <laughs> but it's very yeah. fun. It's it's it was again for me. It was very big and important, shall we say, because it was a very cool sequence. I mean, I'm, we mentioned before, like I fucking at the age of 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 eight or nine, watching Jurassic Park, mm. just being utterly in love. Jurassic Park's title sequence is a bit poo. Yeah, um, it is. And it's like, oh, 
because you want it to be saying cool, but it doesn't matter because again, atmospheric. The, oh, the, the cold open is the important bit. That's what that's what draws you in. But this was just so bombastic, so over the top, so lavish, and made a big impression on me. Tim, yes, bring us something that's going to assault our fucking senses. So, so yeah, uh, my my first pick was very unintrusive, as, as mm. I mentioned. It was very the, the the film is going on, and you barely notice that the the, the credits are there. Mm. Second one is a genuine title sequence, you know, um, that uh, tells you the story of the film. Very traditional. Yeah, my final pick is about as in your face as title sequences can get um uh but in a way is also incredibly traditional because it does it is just the names of the people who make the film up on the screen mm-hmm. uh my final pick is enter the void by gaspar noe uh which for people unfamiliar with which included uh jack uh, until a few minutes before we started <laughs> and literally recording. a few minutes before we started recording mm-hmm. yeah it is a Assault. Uh, it is an assault on the senses. <laughs> it is like if you have any kind of epileptic. I was going to say to, to, put, it, triggers, to warn people, to put it into perspective. They're like, "Oh, you haven't seen it? Like, I'll go and watch it now quickly before the start of the episode." That's the only one I haven't seen. I'll, I'll go and check it out. And before I clicked, I was like, "You, T," and Tim was like, "Do you have epilepsy?" I'm like, <laughs> "Not that I know of." No, it's like. Well, you're going to find out. (laughs) (laughs) You're about to test that theory, Jack, so good luck. So, yeah, if you are sensitive to to flashing lights or strobe lighting or anything like that, maybe skip the End of the Void intro because fuck me. And Uh, I think I literally said after, like, the first three names on screen, I was like, Jesus Christ, and had to blink a couple of times. Um, Yeah, it is is a pulsing uh, electronic score. And the names of the people involved in uh, it starts off with them just in this kind of like um, almost like the impact font um, up on the screen um, in white and orange. I believe it flashes between the two. It's alternating between the two of them. And Um, it doesn't even have a score at the beginning. It's just these horrible like clicking noises and just in time with the flashing. And then it kicks into like. A dance song, I guess. <laughs> yeah, some, some EDM. Yeah, um, yeah. Some EDM and, in the background for no reason. Uh, and it does it does the thing of it runs through the entire cast in that kind of impact font, basic, and then it goes through again what we would consider the traditional like title sequence section of a film. So you get you get the full credits, including stuff like the uh, the uh, all the credits for the songs and everything in the film. All of that stuff, uh, special yeah. effects. And half of it's in Japanese. Well, it's, uh, this, it's the this. different productions, companies of Canada and France and Japan and the other units, yeah. as it were. So there's, so there's chunks that's, that's in Japanese for the yes. Japanese units and stuff like that. Um, and you get brief kind of title cards with a, with a flag for, for the different units and stuff like that. Mm. All I say brief, strobe-like. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you get the entirety of that, and then it goes back to the beginning and gets what you would have as a traditional kind of title sequence type credits, where it's it's directors, it's producers, it's the cast, it's you know the writers, the, the the people that you're legally obligated to have in that initial kind of title sequence. Yeah. Um, and again, this is kind of where the music comes in a bit more. And yeah, it's Mortal kind of Kombat. Like, I was going to say it sounds like the middle bit of Mortal Kombat. That's exactly I, what it sounds like. I say not music, a compliment. It's the kind of thing that if I played it to my father, he'd be like, that's not music. Um, <laughs> that's distortion and feedback. <laughs> uh, 
it's at this point that the the fonts go fucking bananas um, <laughs> and you are literally like when you've got the actors names you see their names in about three or four different fonts and they're, within they're, the space of about a second yeah so and they're all based on neon sign style things where yes, it's like yeah it's orange and pink and blue and green and red and fuck and everything yeah. is just nathaniel brown nathaniel brown nathaniel brown, nathaniel brown, nathaniel brown. <laughs> ah, jesus yeah, yeah it's, it's an assault it is it is so it is so designed to throw you off um you know we've said the word assault we've used many times in this because it's, <laughs> it's literally that it's, it is designed to in a very fundamental way disturb you it is it is meant mm. to say like while other films are kind of like okay we're going to introduce you you know here you come in with this you know uh introduction let yourself gently slide into the world of this film mm-hmm. this one is like someone coming up to you and like punching you in the gut and going the film's starting <laughs> um and uh and then kind of like holding you down while they fart in your face or something it's it's designed to disturb in uh, and throw off your equilibrium you know and like we said you know this epilepsy warning because mm. it will literally just bombard you with this sensory overload the music the visuals are there to drum into you that like something's about to happen mm. um, and then it's a very it gets to the end and it's a very quick just like Oh, and now you're into the film. Um, and it transitions to from enter the uh, the word enter to a sign that says enter. Um, mm. And then just straight away you're into the film. And in a way, you know, Gaspar Noé is known for films that are disturbing and quite often unpleasant to watch. Mm. Um, and in a way, it's like the fact that the, the opening of this film, which I, I have not actually seen the full film, I, I mainly know the title sequence. Mm. Um, the fact that the, the going into this film, which is shot from the first person, becomes a relief after the title sequence. Yeah. <laughs> where for most people, if you were like, oh yeah, we're going into a second, like the film is shot in the first person, they'd be like, oh, that's going to make me a bit dizzy and a bit, bit, <laughs> bit vertigo. It's like, don't worry, that will actually be a balm after the opening <laughs> two minutes of it. Um, so yes, it is incredibly unlike i think anything else that we've got on our list because it is there to in some ways punish the viewer Mm -hmm. um and but in another way entirely prepare them for the kind of film that they're about to see and uh, definitely i think uh, in the past i've been asked to describe not very often but i've been (laughs) asked to describe what is the movies of Every day, someone comes to me and says, "Describe the describe the over of Gaspar Noé." I'm like, "We're in lockdown," and some motherfucker's knocking down my door, saying, "No way!" I'm like, "No, motherfucker." Um, <laughs> yes, yeah, so Gaspar Noé, Argentinian director, um, most of it can be with a lot of French stuff. Um, he's a kind of very, very, very distinct author, and he is an artist through and through. However, assault is a perfect fucking word. <laughs> Because he actively almost doesn't want you to watch his movies. He wants it to be like the Ludovico technique from uh, Clockwork Orange. Where he's like, I'm going to strap you in, peel open your fucking eyes, (laughs) and you're going to have a fucking experience. And it's going to be shit. (laughs) And it's basically how every parent of a child just assumes 
a drug trip is like. Yeah. It's like it's going to be an assault on your every one of your senses, and I do mean that in the sense of every one of your senses, because obviously you've got the nature of 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 the very 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 intense neon battering you're getting, but also the oral battering is the key thing. In it doesn't Irrevo- smell bad. It we does smell bad. How dare you? <laughs> you love everyone in the cinema is throwing up. You just smell the vomit. <laughs> <laughs> but Gasman Away is 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 I, I've been described asked to describe him before, and I said Gasman Away is a very interesting and beautiful creator and what he creates. Who are these people asking you to describe Gasman Away? I had a new tattoo done the other day, um, and I was talking about irreversible. Um, so <laughs> I have. I was like, "What's Gasman Away stuff like?" The director, and I said, "Hmm." And the thing I would describe it as, I said, "It's like looking at the sun." Um, the sun's beautiful. The sun's amazing. The sun gives you so much. It's so intense. And if you can like take like a really sort of proper photograph, I think recently NASA released like a video of the entire the year of the sun, as it were. But in a way, you could actually watch it properly. Like, oh, hmm. that's actually amazing. That's Gaspar Noé's artwork. Except you're just standing outside in the middle of July, staring up yeah. at the sun and going. I am doing myself permanent damage here <laughs> by watching this. Um, Irreversible 2002 is traumatizing as fuck. It's mostly in reverse. And there's a horrible, horrible, horrible rape scene right in the middle. Um, very visceral. Goes on painfully long. And there's also, a, uh, I don't know the specific hurts, but there's a very f- undercurrent frequency that starts very strong and gets less and less as the film goes on that makes you want to be sick. People actually left the cinema because they couldn't. Oh, like Uncut Gems, where they have that frequency that makes everybody Pres- feel very anxious that's, that's and weird. Exactly it. Yeah. yeah, and that's what was in Irreversible in, in, in the early two thousands. Enter the Void is a much. I think it's probably one of his better reviewed films, and um, except I stand alone um, because it is very drug related, and because of that, it's meant to be about the just the again the assault on the senses and Train Spotting. Danny Boyle did a great job of 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 really capturing a lot of the feel of sinking into the floor on certain drugs and the and the, the general strange stuff that Irvin Welsh was describing in his books. Enter the Void is like, imagine being so fucking off your face. And also maybe in certain characters like the POV, dead. Um, mm. And you're in the middle of fucking Tokyo and everything is like, you know, or just in Japan in general, and just so bright and so terrifying. Um, it's, it is genuinely supposed to be just just almost on this side of human comprehension mm. it's it's almost art house shit but it is a very divisive thing and even the title sequence as as tim said prepares you right from the start there's no fucking about mm. there's no i'm going to i'm going to sucker punch him we'll do like a really normal title sequence yeah. <laughs> bit of hans zimmer underneath it and then bang we're going to fucking assault him with all this color and madness no there's no the nice friendliness and establishing tone nope. like Napoleon Dynamite, for example. Even even the actual um uh the the, the, the you know the production house Logan stuff that this smashing in there and everything feels like you're being punched in the face and for better or worse that's interesting and good filmmaking that is the stuff that is remembered as Tim said he hasn't seen the film but he knows this shit and to be fair you lot will as well you're like I'm kind of, of all these ones that I mentioned. I kind, I kind of want to see that one. I don't want to know if I have epilepsy or not, but I might find out. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it is just such, and also let's face it, it is a hard, it's harder to watch the older you get because if you're like in your late teens, you're like, well, fuck me. This is, this is pretty cool. This is quite intense. I, I can keep, I can, and you sort of lie to yourself. Mm. I can keep up with this. I can read all the names because you are absorbing so much information and mm. it improves like the editing mindset of action sequences. You surprise what you take in. 
But the older you get, say late 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, fuck off. Just <laughs> wince. And then you go, how is much more of this do we have? <laughs> yeah. A minute and a half to go. How much more? How is it how is how is it still a minute and a half to go? <laughs> how is it now two minutes to go suddenly? <laughs> yeah. And then and then after it gets all that longer. Yeah. Once you think to yourself, oh thank God we're through that, the movie starts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh thank God, now I can relax. Yeah. No, you can't. I love it. It's the same with, with the alien tension. It's like, what the fuck have I signed myself up for? It's like, yeah. yeah. So for example, for certain people. Can you imagine like, if we swapped those round and Alien had that kind of style of it? <laughs> <laughs> And then it goes to cuts through space and it's nice and quiet. And then we swap that around. And yet we should point out that as much as it sounds like the most unpalatable thing, it's actually really beautifully crafted in a strange way. In the same way that if someone was to imitate it, it would be 10 times worse. Oh, sure. Genuinely, like, oh, this is just fucking shite. There's no structure to this at all. So, interestingly... Um, Kanye West basically ripped it off for a music video. Uh, I believe it was all of the lights. Um, it was it was mm-hmm. something in the uh, my beautiful dark twisted fantasy area mm-hmm. uh, era, and um, yeah, and and basically kind of ripped it off and did an all right job because it's so so just a transparent rip off. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think I think if anyone else tried to do something like this but made it less you know, wanted a little bit more creative distance, yeah, you would end up with something that was entirely kind of incomprehensible. Whereas mm-hmm. this, like you say, it has a strange beauty to it, especially once you get get through to the like the, the, the changing fonts and it's less yeah. of like that part is less of just a pulsing like onslaught and mm. it is actually kind of there's there's almost elements of like storytelling in there mm. as fast as it's coming at you. It's um, a delivery method, of course, yeah. Yeah. I think, if anything, Life of Brian is a celebration and a send-up of uh, classical art. And <laughs> this is a celebration and send-up of modern art. Mm. The kind of thing when people say, like, oh, I really like a National Portrait Gallery in London. Because I do. It's cool. Nice. And I don't give a shit about the Tate. Um, <laughs> because I don't... Um, a lot of modern art, I enjoy, I experience. I think that's actually quite cool. Um, some of it, I go, fuck off. Uh, that yeah. is literally a fire extinguisher in a corner of a room. That is bullshit. And I understand what you're trying to go for. And you can retroactively talk about all this kind of stuff. And that's how a lot of people see Gaspar Noé's things. Um, In terms of like, I mean, the impact on things like Nicholas Windig Refn, for example, Mm. uh, who did like, uh, especially Drive, because when it comes to like, one of my most iconic scenes in Drive where he takes the, wasn't it a fire extinguisher? It's just smashing this guy's face in, in the lift. Uh, It's just his feet. feet, feet, yeah. Yeah. The reason I said that is because in Irreversible, there's a, painful and I should point because it's in reverse it's one of the first scenes you see in a fucking oh, interesting. sex club yeah. in, in Paris There's this, this, these guys go in and they get their arms broken to pieces because they're in a fight they don't stand a chance to win and one of them gets a fire extinguisher which just smashes it into this guy's face until it crumples in and it's CGI crumpling it's, it's, but it's really good and well done whereas when they came to do that, Refn uh, said to Gaspar Noé, how did you do that? What was the sound stuff? And what were the things, you know, that kind of influence, as it were? I think that's a very interesting point that, you know, he does a very, um, a lot of really wacky out there shit that can be diluted, filtered down, 
formatted and put into something much more palatable for a mainstream audience in the same way that strangely enough to quote devil wear the the devil wears prada you have a very 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 bold color and look and shape on the, the runway and over years it finally filters down to a more palatable version that's a bit more bland a bit more mm. mainstream that the public can actually yeah. consume so after that barrage <laughs> jack what's your final pick are you ready for a barrage of funk, <laughs> a barrage of disco, oh, sexual energy of a young John Travolta. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm going all the way back to not a film we covered, but we did kind of talk about it on the episode. We did the Staying Alive episode way back in the day. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about the deceptively good <laughs> original film, Saturday Night Fever. Mm-hmm. And I remember us specifically talking about that intro sequence and how badly it's imitated at the end of Staying Alive. So to put it in perspective, very quickly, the Saturday Night Fever one, he's walking through his neighborhood and Staying Alive by the Bee Gees is playing in the background. That's your lot. They do, as simple as that is, I'll go into more detail in a second, but they tried to imitate that in Staying Alive, where he does his, like, try, all I gotta do is strut, and then he walks <laughs> through fucking Times Square and has that whole thing. Except the difference is there's no character work. There's nothing... It doesn't tell you anything about him in the second one like it does in the first one, because the reason the first one works so well... Um, I think it was you, Tim, that brought this up, like... The fact that you learn he's like he's a working class guy and mm-hmm. you see like where he lives and the fact he picks up a slice of pizza and is like, oh, he's Italian and all this guy he lives in an Italian American neighborhood and he's got like a paint can with him and all this kind of stuff. And it's like just from his walk and the way he's kind of carrying himself, you can tell he's a young, like trying to be confident, but he's probably down on his luck and all this kind of stuff. And you can tell from the way he walks. <laughs> he's a woman's man, but he's got no time to talk. Got to eat fucking pizza, though. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, the the Saturday Night Fever one, and we've talked about setting tones, setting atmosphere, building the setting and stuff. What this one does better than a lot of the other ones I can think of, and again, what we talked about and what surprised me so much, is how well it builds character and how quickly you understand, okay, I get the setting, I get the, you know, I get all this stuff, and then you need to understand what's going on and why, you know, why he does what he does, where he lives, who he is. Like Tony is is this this important character and, and a more complex character than Staying Alive certainly gives him credit for because he's an interesting character in Saturday Night Fever because he has these flaws and these problems and shit like that. Mm. And you instantly get a sense of who he is, what he stands for, where he is in his life at the moment and all that kind of stuff just from him walking down a street. And that's all you need. Mm-hmm. And it works brilliantly and perfectly and then they fucked it in the second one (laughs) as as we have previously discussed on an episode of this show but yeah i I think that film first of all the first film surprised me about how good it was and how good and important that opening sequence is Mm -hmm. and how yeah how good it is basically and it's it is a good example of like again as we said it's a music video but with perfect environmental (laughs) storytelling because yeah. you learn everything you need to know about the uh, the situation, the character, the setting, everything. Yeah. And it does it without... And this is the, the key thing we haven't really touched on enough. Without you realising what it's doing. Because you're just going, oh, that's fucking cool. So you get so much across so quickly and you don't realise it. Because again, I should point out, 
obviously film theorists and film school attendees and and professors of, and it, to be fair podcasts and youtube channels that break these things down we all discuss this stuff as if it's new, but most people don't realize it's, we, there's a patreon exclusive episode we talked about I, I love it and i always talk about it um food and how it's used on film sure yeah, yeah. and it's one of those moments where you realize, when you sort of realize hang on and after you, someone makes you aware of this thing you just can't not notice it so for example saturday night fever it's just like, well, yeah, he's walking down the road and the music's good and he's walking to the music. And so, well, actually, technically, he's not walking to the music because it's not playing anywhere. That's how that works mm. to start with. And you start learning these things, bits and pieces, and you become like, oh, and then you can't not see it. So, for example, you find out how things become more memorable. So, again, Jack, for the first time last year, I want to say, yeah, it was last year, saw Saturday Night Fever. God, it feels like longer ago than, I mean, lockdown has been going it's, for like five or six years at this point. Yeah. So. <laughs> La- last year in real time, Two millennia in lockdown time. <laughs> um, but the thing, and we were, we, obviously Jack's watching films as normal and absorbing a lot of films for sequelizers because he has to. He has to. Um, <laughs> but that stuck with him. So when we talk about the idea of like, what do you think? That one. That one's in my brain. Not because it was recent, but because it was great. But if you talk about things like, again, I mentioned like some of your big films, we love, we, we always bang on about Denis Villeneuve. And sure. you could talk about Christopher Nolan and stuff. A lot of the time, those ones are kind of flat. And, and maybe then they'd be argued. You go back and go, actually, no, that is a good one. I'll take it back, that kind of thing. Mm. But if I say, what's the Sicario title sequence like? Or what's mm-hmm. that for prisons? And you go, eh, hang on, yeah. it'll come to me. That kind of thing. Mm. Um, yeah. And Saturday Night Fever is the uh, very fortunate nature of being a pairing of both. A really fucking good film and a really great scene setting opening and, and weirdly enough, it does tie into Enter the Void because it's full of neon signs as well. <laughs> the sat- it has like Saturday and then it yeah. waits for a second and then yeah. night do, 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 and then fever and fever like mm-hmm. flashes and stuff. It's just just, just classic kind yep. of... The, the film is almost telling you it's aware of the music and aware of the timing. And yeah. that's the nature of like all these things. Like the and, Soul Bass mindset, it's very much... Weird enough, I think, we, I think we talked about this on the episode or maybe even the commentary of Staying Alive. Mm-hmm. It wasn't originally staying alive that he's no. walking down the street to. I, th- I can't remember whether it's Stevie Wonder or Michael Jackson. I thought it was, it was Stevie Wonder. I think it was Superstition by Stevie Wonder yeah. was the original thing. Because they're both like... And then the... It's the same kind of like beats per minute kind of four on the floor kind of, yeah. Um so he's able to walk in time with either one. You can kind of cut it between mm, the two. People mm. have cut it to all sorts of shit ever since, which mm, I think is fantastic um, because the internet. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the way the mu- that sets up, like, and it, and the, the credits end with like, here's a bunch of songs by the Bee Gees. Like, mm. And obviously now that is a huge thing of like, and I, mm. I remember, again, remember saying that in the episode, like I had no idea basically all of the Bee Gees' greatest hits are because of this <laughs> this film. I've heard of all of these songs and they're all just the Bee Gees songs for this film. Not like, oh, they had a bunch of albums and there's like one hit from each of the albums yeah, throughout yeah. the decades. It's like, no, they just did a bunch at the same time and released mm. some of the biggest like disco songs ever for this film. Mm. And that was it, basically. <laughs> to, a, to a lesser point, it's, it's kind of like when we did way back in the earlier seasons, like Highlander, where Queen wrote so many songs, like, no, they just have a new Queen songs, right? It's like, no, they were songs written for that film. Oh, yeah. (laughs) What? And yeah, so I I think um, much like the Bond one, there are a lot of ones you go, no, 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 this song was written for this movie and 
ties in everything together mm-hmm. um and not just like a, a in the same way that a score would for example um unlike just pairing something up but yeah so satellite fever i can i can completely i, I get that I, I will log on as the bg's defender and i say and say i think you're underselling there jack they do have they do have many more songs that are also good I I wholeheartedly sure. disagree with you. <laughs> I like I like the Bee Gees. There's nothing wrong with the Bee Gees, but eh, I was good. amazed at how many of the like really fucking famous songs yeah. are just from that soundtrack. Basically, <laughs> were is, written for that song. Everything bar like "How Deep Is Your Love," basically. <laughs> <laughs> so to go from 1977, Year of Our Lord, Year of Our Lord John Travolta. <laughs> yes, the Year of Our Lord John Travolta. What what lord would you like to talk about, Matthew? Very good, very good. That's very a fucking good. segue, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. They don't pay me the big bucks for nothing, ladies and <laughs> gentlemen. Mm. Um, the other segue you could have made was we're going to take John Travolta's face <laughs> off, off, <laughs> put it on Nicholas Cage. <laughs> so um, we're going to go to two thousand and five. Doing uh, the Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's it's a. It's all over the place. It's wild. Does it have a title <laughs> sequence? I don't even remember enough of that film to know if it has a title sequence. It's probably like a, a very much like a gasp in the way. It's probably uh, him just scr- down screaming thing. into the <laughs> void while his face is on fire. <laughs> just a very visceral thing. So there's a film that's a bit, a bit of a weird one. Um, it's a, it's an Andrew Nichol movie called Lord of War from 2005. I really like it. I think it's got a bit of a toothlessness at times, but there's so much going on in there that you I leave think my cat alone. <laughs> well played um except it's a pun fuck you no um <laughs> i think i think there's so much going on in this movie that makes it really interesting and the conversation was having in 2005 especially so this is uh obviously pre-crash sort of stuff but it, interestingly slipping from goldeneye it talks about the nature of once again this the fall of the soviet union led to a huge vacuum in terms of like these arms there's just these, these these weapons that have been accumulating for so long and stockpiling and then filtered down to other countries. And Lord of War is about an arms dealer, basically. Um, a, a Ukrainian-American bloke um, <laughs> played by Nicolas Cage and his drugged-up brother played by Jared Leto. Because yeah. how what much a combination. crazy stuff in a film. Yep. <laughs> um, but it is actually a really good film. It's the kind of thing, it sort of made me feel like an Ed Zwick kind of film in a weird way, mm. um, a Blood Diamond kind of thing. But it, 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 it didn't have the same utter gut punch throughout. But that is not true of the title sequence, which is just brilliant. Just mm. a brilliant bit of filmmaking. Um, again, narrative storytelling through uh, the environment. Um, so it starts with a long point of sort of crawling on the floor of just literally uh, just a carpet of spent shells of bullets like big chunky fucking ak-47 rounds as it were <laughs> and it's got nicholas cage down there with a briefcase and he turns around straight down the camera breaking the fourth wall and explains uh, did you know that uh, there are x amount of guns in the world there's one for every 12 people and the only question i have is how do we arm the other, other 11 and it's kind of like nick naylor in the thank you for smoking kind of things like <laughs> this is a dick <laughs> like he's going to be charming throughout and at that point um the song oh god there's gonna stop me now it's uh, oh, uh for what, what it's worth, worth by buffalo springfield buffalo springfield exactly and it's this very sort of 60s slight country pop kind of thing going on very the typical sort of like you know anti-war thing you see in like a vietnam mm. film kind of thing um something happening here like kind of very slow mm. build and it shows effectively the life of a bullet 
And that alone should hopefully draw you in and say, wait, what? And so you go to this this factory where they're going chung chung, printing sheet metal, printing the cap that goes to the bullet itself, the casing, the bullet housing. Uh, it goes onto a conveyor belt. It's inspected by a bloke. Gets chucked in a thing. Gets into a crate. Crate goes to a uh, a port. It rolls out because the crate falls on the floor. They catch a, a bullets and chuck them back in the box. The box gets shipped to Africa. There's a load of um, African basically guerrilla fighters as it were and they start loading them in you can see again i should point out it's a pov from the bullet yeah point it's of all, view. all from the bullet point of view which yeah. is brilliant and it gets loaded into the into the magazine of this uh we can see my ak-47 clocked in and then the whole camera so it's like because it goes dark obviously and the, the song's still playing like what's uh what is what is going on right now because you got to see anything. Then there's lots of flashing as several bullets are fired and the bullet sits itself into the uh, muzzle of the gun um, down the barrel. And you're like, ah, James Bond. I'm, <laughs> I know where we are now. And then it tracks around as a minute as it goes on. And the song's still having this happy go lucky mm-hmm. something. And the bullet goes whap and gets fired finally. It's like, ah, this is it. This is black and Ah, this is where the sexy lady opens her mouth and catches it. <laughs> I know what happens here because I was 11 years old in the cinema. I know. Um, yes, and so this is, this is the life of Bullet. This is what a bullet is for. And it's that perfect moment of poignancy where the music stops and the bullet, everything slows down at that point and the bullet mm. just goes straight through this little kid's face. And it's like, oh, fuck. Yeah. But it's brilliant. It's Some would say it's kind of like, you know, a little bit... Um, how can I phrase this? Because I think it's, it's 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 fair to say this. It's one of the critiques of the film. It's a little bit obvious and cliche in a way. Like, oh no, oh god, child soldiers, you say? <laughs> Shit. It's like, yeah, but that's important, and I think it needs to be discussed. And I think that's what the film does. It talks about when we talk about guns, when we talk about munitions. Yes, of course, we're talking about like old superpowers of the West and and and, uh, and Russia and things like that. It's like, yeah, but these things filter down to nations who are fighting shit out and it goes to the highest bidder from these fucking awful awful individuals played by uh, i say nicholas cage and, and ian home of all fucking people because bilbo comes out and starts selling guns um <laughs> it's weird um but no it's 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 a very beautiful sequence in a weird way because it, it is almost expectation personified because you're like oh a conveyor belt i know where this is going they're gonna build a bullet Oh, it's getting shipped. Well, I know where this is going. It's going to go into like a factory or... Sh- well, sorry. Mm. It's going to go into a shop or it's going to go into a uh, a person's gun, basically. You know where it's going. It's like, you do know where this actually ends up, right? And that's mm. the whole point of guns, the, the 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 lie we tell ourselves. And I mean, again, I have someone who's a very silly live-action cartoon thing where people fire guns and it's all very stupid. We have a face, you know, uh, blown off... Uh, sorry, a hole blown through someone's face in, 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 in our series. It's all very irreverent comedy nonsense. But the reality is these things are designed to kill. I remember when I went for my first shooting lesson, which is a, just a clay pigeon shotgun stuff. And I, I may have mentioned this on the show before. My um, teacher told me one thing that has always, always fucking stuck with me. Do not point that at anything you do not want to utterly destroy. Because mm. it will not be there if you fuck up. And it's like, what? And I don't think it ever really occurred to me because obviously you think like, oh, guns are cool. It's like, yeah, we're gonna mess around with it, and it's very much part of our. I'm gonna point it culture. at my mate, and it's gonna be funny, and he's gonna go, oh yep. no, don't point a gun at me, it's a joke. And, yeah. Oh no, that he's literally fucking dead. And I think yeah. there's a maturity thing we don't have in this country. We have the em- the emulation and imitation of America because guns are legal there, whereas guns are technically legal here, but very, very, very controlled. That's why knife crime is so high. But at the same time, 
it's a very different environment, very different landscape. Um, so when you finally do get hold of a gun and fire it, hopefully there's, you know, a bit of severity and weight to it rather than just like a thrill of like, yes, and now to turn it on everyone I know. Um, but I think that, that that's something that the film Lord of War specifically starts with is like, yep, it's going to be a very kind of interestingly paced comedy kind of black comedy. But ultimately, we're going to be talking about dead people and dead kids and war and bad shit. And you should feel prepared for that. Yeah, I, th- I think it's it's um, it's interesting because it goes back uh, with you were saying earlier about people who specialise in making opening title sequences. This was mm. one of those examples. This was made by, uh, I can't remember, the, I'm sure you've probably got the details at hand or something, um, but a, a specific uh, opening title, you know, because it's quite heavily C- CGI because you're following the perspective of a bullet. There's a lot of stuff yeah. you can't do with conventional camera work there. Um, and unfortunately... I think watching it now, there's a little bit of janky CGI occasionally, which which yeah. takes you out of it. But it's, it's not, not too it's bad. Early two thousands, isn't it? Yeah, um, mm. and I think it's it's almost a shame um, because as much as it's, it's a little bit on the nose, yeah, it is, um, it is. and a what little bit. Uh, it's also it's kind of the best bit of that film. It's the thing uh, that sticks with you. Fair. Uh, I I have seen that film. The only other things I can remember is Gerard Leto's character making a map of the Ukraine out yes. of cocaine, which he then tries to snort, <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, an African warlord who wants Rambo's machine gun. Um, and whereas that opening sequence really sticks with you because it's so it's so simple um, and straightforward. And it says, look at this thing that we have turned into a trade good, like any other, you know, it's stamped out in a factory and then it passes mm. through these places and, you know, here's, here's your kind mass of production former kind of bullshit, Red Army yeah. guy, you know, checking it over and then off it goes to Africa, you know, and it's it's part of this global network of trade and commerce, but ultimately the thing it does is it kills people. And I think, you know, you even get that moment just as the as the sequence ends after the, the, the child has been shot, where it there's a brief, like a half a second where it goes like kind of dark red where it's just like oh you're in this person's you're yes you are the bullet yeah, you're in this in the person's brain. brain yeah you like that mm. is how brutal it gets without without really showing any gore at all as, as part of it no yeah, it's, it's, it's not gratuitous is it yeah it's like yeah. you close your eyes and look at the sun it's like you see your own eyelids and you go <laughs> oh yeah. that's weird but it's not visceral it's mm. blurry it's very yeah. yes but implied. but at the same time it's incredibly striking of just mm. like no this like as much as and you know, it's a Nicolas Cage film, although it's one of my, his more serious films, especially in this period. Very serious, um, yeah. We're going to see him, you know, playing around with guns and talking and, and often talking about guns in these, you know, incredibly large, detached sort of ways. Like we say, the opening thing, his little monologue is, you know, there's there's this many guns in the world. It's one for every 12 people. How do we arm the other for 11? Mm. Talking about it in these very abstract terms. And yet the thing that you have to remember is that Every gun has the capacity to do this over and over again. Every individual bullet can do this to a person. That was one of the... You talk about the visual imagery from that movie. One of the things I like from the movie, especially, is when they're literally firing off round after round, ching, 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 as it were. And you cut to Nicolas Cage's perspective and all he hears is ting, ting, yeah. which is the cash register sound going over and over and over. It's like, yep, every one of those things make me money. Um, incidentally, just to, to call back for a second, uh, Jan Blondell 
uh, with the imaginary forces, I believe, with the sort of pairing that made the the title sequence. But again, not by the director themselves. And as you say, it's very telling that one of the best parts about that movie is something that wasn't actually done by the director. I think we talked about Lord of War previously, or we've talked about this intro before. Because I've I've not seen the film, I've only seen that intro sequence. And speaking of things that we talk about regularly, something I always fucking bring up, because of course I do, uh, the Corridor guys went through Mm. the CGI behind this and talked about, as you said, Tim, the impossible camera angles of doing, they have like digital transitions between shots and stuff. And Mm -hmm. a load of it is legit shots of like a Mm. tiny little shot of a camera inside a tube and all this kind of stuff and mm. it's very very cleverly done and i think of all of the ones like i joke about the life of brian being the parody of the bond <laughs> thing and 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 the, the the traveling bullet going across and i like i said like landing in the sexy lady's mouth oh no <laughs> all this kind of stuff this one is perhaps the most like technically impressive to me and that you sure. can actually like you said maybe it doesn't hold up these days but it's it's, an, it's a hell of a sequence to have make it look like a single shot and make it look like mm. you really are on this table. And I think I have a feeling they developed some new technology, or whether it was camera technology or, or CGI did, yeah. on particular, where they were able to transition from scene to scene and shot to shot in a in a most seamless way that nobody else had done at that time. And yeah, I've not seen the film, but I'm very aware of this intro sequence for that exact reason just because it pushed the boundaries of what filmmakers could do at that time with that kind of technology Mm. and i think you know we mentioned a couple of times the the fact that it evokes james bond with the fact that uh, uh, Mm. towards the end you end up literally staring down the barrel Mm. and like the opening of james bond and and bond openings often play with the imagery of guns and bullets shooting all over the place and make it you get the classic Bond turn and, and shoot the screen and you get yeah. the blood across the screen. And as you said, Tim, you get this with this one, but that's the brain of a child. And it's like, yeah, yeah. here's to, here's to mm-hmm. subvert your expectations. Well, like, oh, like, he's just shot the cameraman or whatever, like some yeah. arbitrary thing for Bond. It's like, well, yeah, whatever. Casino Royale, where it's like, I'm going to shoot. And what comes out? Oh, it's a club or a heart. Yeah, exactly. It's like a casino. Yeah. And you're like, nah, it's a fucking bullet. People die. Yeah, yeah. Bond Bond turns them into kind of trivializes them a bit. It, it? it trivializes and also glamorizes the most whole which I mean so many action films yeah. do and you of know because guns but, are sexy. But it's it's a very, very clever way by having that little evocation of James Bond to just hammer home that point of like this is what you know This is how Bond, guns work in real Bond life. Bond would traditionally, you know, Bond films or, or your generic action films would treat bullets as just these Oh, it's just a thing that happens, you know. And, yeah. You know, uh, whereas here is what they are actually about. Even like most films don't even dare to keep track of like how many bullets are in a magazine yeah. or in a clip <laughs> or whatever. Like, did that guy just fire 15 shots from a pistol? I don't think that's how that works. And all that, yeah, it's, it's, like you said, it's, it's just the Arnold Schwarzenegger endless rounds, constant. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the big fight in Commando is the perfect Commando, example of that. Yeah. Where yeah. It's just like. He fires about nine million rounds out of that that gun (laughs) and has like bullets strapped to his chest and stuff because of course he does. He's Schwarzenegger in the 80s. (laughs) But none of them are actually loaded into the gun or anything like that. So none of it makes any sense. You're like, okay, yeah. It's the the Hot Shots parody where it's like, and he starts ticking over the different films like, oh, I'm going to overload kind of thing. Yes, until he ends up like buried under the bullet casing. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Um, which again, uh, of all things, again, I, I really like Black Hawk Down, which is a really good film. But mm, yeah. um, the idea that 
bullet casings burn you when they come out um, because they're hot fucking they're hot. metal and explosion yeah. has just come out of. Um, but I think interestingly, maybe not all of these, but definitely some of the more strong ones that stick in our minds, especially especially Lord of, Lord of War, I think above all of them, work as short films that don't require the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. You can just show somebody that and go, that's pretty fucking cool, right? And you go, God, that is really cool. That should get an award for being a great short film. No, it's a title <laughs> sequence. You're like, uh, oh, okay. Yeah, um, imagine that was like an indie short film. It was just... It was just called like bullet or something. Um, I think it does have a thing. It's, like it's called the consequence or something, or the, or, or the life or something. It actually does have a, a name for it specifically. Interesting. But you can imagine that sort of thing. And as you mentioned, like the the seven style, where that was kind of first brought into yeah, yeah. modern cinema, is like having an entirely separate short film for the intro. I can totally imagine that being its own little thing and a little like indie film political commentary mm. kind of thing and have it not even tie into a Nicolas Cage film of all things <laughs> yeah so there are some of our favourite some of our most traumatising <laughs> opening, <laughs> opening title sequences from the history of cinema going through the ages and through various different genres and things like that as we said we'll get to more Bond stuff so don't worry about that but if you do have any suggestions, if you do have any thoughts or anything like that, you can contact us on various social medias. We are sequelizers on everything. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, whatever you need, whatever you want. Singing status quo for some reason. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> it's been a very musical episode. I'm sorry. You can contact us on there. It's nice and easy. If you have a longer message, you can go to sequelizers at gmail.com and send us an email as well. And as we said, the playlist for all the uh, intros and title sequences is going to be in the description for the episode. And we'll post a tweet out and all that kind of stuff. We've built a little playlist for you guys as curated by one Mr. Tim Matum. Thank you, Tim. Mm. Epilepsy warning. Yes. yes. Enjoy them all, except enter the void. Because <laughs> you won't enjoy that. But it is interesting, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, genuinely, if you are sensitive to strobe lighting or anything like that, we joke about this kind of stuff like, ah, ha, ha, but genuinely, yeah. if, you, if you are sensitive, and I know a good friend of mine who is a listener to the show, Rob, who, who's written into our Q&A things before, mm. has epilepsy. So <laughs> uh, yeah, bear that in mind, folks, when, you, when you're, it. feel free to, to skip through that one and, and don't risk it because, yeah. yeah. I mean, even if you don't, it might be worth skipping because it's just such an assault <laughs> on your eyes no there'll be like a thing in the discord of like how long did you get through oh it's the whole three minutes there mate yeah <laughs> how, how many times did you watch it in a row mate i'm on like six hours i can't, I can't <laughs> see or still hear anything watching it. <laughs> <laughs> i've not seen the film i've just seen the intro sequence repeated enough times <laughs> that it's now longer than the feature film itself <laughs> <laughs> but anyway you can also contact me directly on social medias i am jlw chambers on everything instagram twitter facebook all that stuff Matthew, how can I contact you on the social medias? Build a bullet and shoot a kid, I guess. Ah. Figure it out. No. In order to contact you, they must sacrifice a child. I mean, I, I do have a very devilish look at that. that and you do. Unfortunately fear. Um, no, Stogs, S-T-O-G-H-Z, on the internets, on the various social medias. You can go to cheeseman.com and see the various things that we make and produce. Um, you can glean down on its title sequence to see Pepe Kelton, which is fucking awesome. You can go to the redrighthand.co.uk to read my reviews, uh, which again have started up now because cinemas slowly, maybe, maybe, who knows? Very slowly, one at a time. But yes, there, there are older reviews there as well for you to peruse and enjoy. Tim, if you want to assault people by flashing them over <laughs> and over and over, how and why would you do that? 
uh, for the hell of it. Um, nice, but nice. yes, uh, you can come uh, and visit me on Twitter. Trivia underscore lad uh, is where I can be found. And uh, yeah, that's the best place to find me uh, in general. Uh, come come chat about comics, TV, film. Uh, if the baseball season is still going on, then I'll be supporting my beloved Kansas City Breath Mints. Um, and uh, yeah, you can also, as we've mentioned, join us on the Discord, uh, where we have a wonderful community of listeners uh, who chat about the episodes, uh, films, and a huge variety of other topics, um, from the the cuddly and wonderful pets channel to the bleak and dis- depressing uh, politics channel. Oh yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, you can uh, come and uh, chat to us there. We have a I'd say a wonderful community of friendly folks. As we always say, uh, liking and sharing stuff is very, very helpful for us. So thank you very much for doing so. Recommendations are always incredibly welcome and appreciated. However, if you are able to financially support the show, we are extremely grateful and obviously give you back as much as we can. And you can find out about all these things uh, either in the form of our store um, or alternatively our Patreon, which various tiers, all of which can be found at sequelizers.com. Uh, so if you head over there, you can find out the uh, the cool shit that you can get for some of that sweet money. Buy our cool shit. <laughs> yeah. Every time we hit the refresh button, we hear a ching, ching, ching. <laughs> we, we we don't, but but thank you either way. We we appreciate all the support you guys can give. And as always, if you can't, there's no pressure. If you can, that's really cool. We try and give back as much as we can to you guys. If you like thinking, oh, I'm, I might be able to afford it. I can make that work. You don't just go, oh, okay, it starts from now. Here's mm-hmm. one thing. You get all the back catalogue. There's so much stuff to wade through. You'd There's have so many hours on there now. Literally of bonus hours content. and hours got it. Exactly. Um, and if you um, incidentally have bought any of our artwork from the posters, because um, I know a fair few people obviously have, and they're like, I need to get these framed up on the wall. Please take a picture of us uh, with them and show them to us. We, we'd, we'd love to see like where you've put them in your house, basically. Where would you <laughs> frame them? Have you put them like, in an office, in a bedroom, in your toilet? That's very strange. <laughs> um, but yes, we'd like to see what you've, what you've on done. On the them, ceiling basically. above your bed? Yes. Masturbatory joy. Oh. Damn it, Spock. Go climb a giant rock. Kurt Russell face to masturbate to, as as we often do. Yeah, he gets you through the pitch. Gets you through in a pinch. Get out, Dogden. And of course, speaking of Patreon and supporting us, we'd like to give a very special thank you to our three executive producers. Mr. Jonathan Firth-Clark. Mr. Mike Salvia. And, of course, Stuart Main. Thank you for your support, as always, gentlemen. And that wraps us up for this episode mm. of more interseason content. Of course, we'll be back next week with more interseason goodness. Mm-hmm. This will be carrying on for a few more weeks, but uh, we'll be getting to season seven, back to sequelizers in the not too distant future. Don't you worry. But between now and then, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next week.
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.